Tantor Audio, a division of Recorded Books, presents Black Shirts and Reds, Rational Fascism and the Overthrow of Communism by Michael Parenti Narrated by Timothy Andres Pabon Preface This book invites those immersed in the prevailing orthodoxy of democratic capitalism to entertain iconoclastic views, to question the shibboleths of free market mythology and the persistence of both right and left anti-communism, and to consider anew, with a receptive but not uncritical mind, the historic efforts of the much-maligned Reds and other revolutionaries. The political orthodoxy that demonizes communism permeates the entire political perspective. Even people on the left have internalized the liberal and or conservative ideology that equates fascism and communism as equally evil totalitarian twins, two major mass movements of the 20th century. This book attempts to show the enormous differences between fascism and communism, both past and present, both in theory and practice, especially in regard to questions of social equality, private capital accumulation, and class interest. The orthodox mythology also would have us believe that the Western democracies, with the United States leading the way, have opposed both totalitarian systems with equal vigor. In fact, U.S. leaders have been dedicated above all to making the world safe for global corporate investment and the private profit system. Pursuant of this goal, they have used fascism to protect capitalism while claiming to be saving democracy from communism. In this book I discuss how capitalism propagates and profits from fascism, the value of revolution in the advancement of the human condition, the causes and effects of the destruction of communism, the continuing relevance of Marxism and class analysis, and the heartless nature of corporate class power. Over a century ago, in his great work Les Miserables, Victor Hugo asked, Will the future arrive? He was thinking of a future of social justice, free from the terrible shadows of oppression imposed by the few upon the great mass of humankind. Of late, some scribes have announced the end of history. With the overthrow of communism, the monumental struggle between alternative systems has ended, they say. Capitalism's victory is total. No great transformations are in the offing. The global free market is here to stay. What you see is what you are going to get, now and always. This time the class struggle is definitely over, so Hugo's question is answered. The future has indeed arrived, though not the one he had hoped for. This intellectually anemic end-of-history theory was hailed as a brilliant exegesis and accorded a generous reception by commentators and reviewers of the corporate-controlled media. It served the official worldview perfectly well, saying what the higher circles had been telling us for generations, that the struggle between classes is not an everyday reality, but an outdated notion, that an untrammeled capitalism is here to stay now and forever, that the future belongs to those who control the present. But the question we really should be asking is, do we have a future at all? More than ever, with the planet itself at stake, it becomes necessary to impose a reality check on those who would plunder our limited ecological resources in the pursuit of limitless profits, those who would squander away our birthright and extinguish our liberties in their uncompromising pursuit of self-gain. 
history teaches us that all ruling elites try to portray themselves as the natural and durable social order, even ones that are in serious crisis, that threaten to devour their environmental base in order to continually recreate their hierarchical structure of power and privilege, and all ruling elites are scornful and intolerant of alternative viewpoints. Truth is an uncomfortable venue for those who pretend to serve our society, while in fact serving only themselves, at our expense. I hope this effort will chip away at the big lie. The truth may not set us free, as the Bible claims, but it is an important first step in that direction. Michael Parenti Chapter 1 Rational Fascism While walking through New York's Little Italy, I passed a novelty shop that displayed posters and T-shirts of Benito Mussolini giving the fascist salute. When I entered the shop and asked the clerk why such items were being offered, he replied, Well, some people like them. And you know, maybe we need someone like Mussolini in this country. His comment was a reminder that fascism survives as something more than a historical curiosity. Worse than posters or T-shirts are the works by various writers bent on explaining Hitler or re-evaluating Franco, or in other ways, sanitizing fascist history. In Italy, during the 1970s, there emerged a veritable cottage industry of books and articles claiming that Mussolini not only made the trains run on time, but also made Italy work well. All these publications, along with many conventional academic studies, have one thing in common. They say little, if anything, about the class policies of fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. How did these regimes deal with social services, taxes, business, and the conditions of labor? For whose benefit and at whose expense? Most of the literature on fascism and Nazism does not tell us. Plutocrats choose autocrats. Let us begin with a look at fascism's founder. Born in 1883, the son of a blacksmith, Benito Mussolini's early manhood was marked by street brawls, arrests, jailings, and violent radical political activities. Before World War I, Mussolini was a socialist. A brilliant organizer, agitator, and gifted journalist, he became editor of the Socialist Party's official newspaper. Yet many of his comrades suspected him of being less interested in advancing socialism than in advancing himself. Indeed, when the Italian upper class tempted him with recognition, financial support, and the promise of power, he did not hesitate to switch sides. By the end of World War I, Mussolini, the socialist, who had organized strikes for workers and peasants, had become Mussolini, the fascist, who broke strikes on behalf of financiers and landowners. Using the huge sums he received from wealthy interests, he projected himself onto the national scene as the acknowledged leader of I Fasci di Combattimento, a movement composed of black-shirted ex-army officers and sundry toughs, who were guided by no clear political doctrine other than a militaristic patriotism and conservative dislike for anything associated with socialism and organized labor. The fascist blackshirts spent their time attacking trade unionists, socialists, communists, and farm cooperatives. After World War I, Italy had settled into a pattern of parliamentary democracy. The low pay scales were improving, and the trains were already running on time. But the capitalist economy was in a post-war recession. Investments stagnated. 
heavy industry operated far below capacity, and corporate profits and agribusiness exports were declining. To maintain profit levels, the large landowners and industrialists would have to slash wages and raise prices. The state, in turn, would have to provide them with massive subsidies and tax exemptions. To finance this corporate welfareism, the populace would have to be taxed more heavily, and social services and welfare expenditures would have to be drastically cut. Measures that might sound familiar to us today. But the government was not completely free to pursue this course. By 1921, many Italian workers and peasants were unionized and had their own political organizations. With demonstrations, strikes, boycotts, factory takeovers, and the forcible occupation of farmlands, they had won the right to organize along with concessions in wages and work conditions. To impose a full measure of austerity upon workers and peasants, the ruling economic interests would have to abolish the democratic rights that helped the masses defend their modest living standards. The solution was to smash their unions, political organizations, and civil liberties. Industrialists and big landowners wanted someone at the helm who could break the power of organized workers and farm laborers and impose a stern order on the masses. For this task, Benito Mussolini, armed with his gangs of black shirts, seemed the likely candidate. In 1922, the Federazione Industriale, composed of the leaders of industry, along with representatives from the banking and agribusiness associations, met with Mussolini to plan the March on Rome, contributing 20 million lira to the undertaking. With the additional backing of Italy's top military officers and police chiefs, the fascist revolution, really a coup d'etat, took place. Within two years after seizing state power, Mussolini had shut down all opposition newspapers and crushed the socialist, liberal, Catholic, Democratic, and Republican parties, which together had commanded some 80% of the vote. Labor leaders, peasant leaders, parliamentary delegates, and others critical of the new regime were beaten, exiled, or murdered by fascist terror squadristi. The Italian Communist Party endured the severest repression of all, yet managed to maintain a courageous underground resistance that eventually evolved into armed struggle against the Black Shirts and the German Occupation Force. In Germany, a similar pattern of complicity between fascists and capitalists emerged. German workers and farm laborers had won the right to unionize, the eight-hour day, and unemployment insurance. But to revive profit levels, heavy industry and big finance wanted wage cuts for their workers and massive state subsidies and tax cuts for themselves. During the 1920s, the Nazi Sturmabteilung, or SA, the brown-shirted stormtroopers, subsidized by business, were used mostly as an anti-labor paramilitary force whose function was to terrorize workers and farm laborers. By 1930, most of the tycoons had concluded that the Weimar Republic no longer served their needs and was too accommodating to the working class. They greatly increased their subsidies to Hitler, propelling the Nazi party onto the national stage. Business tycoons supplied the Nazis with generous funds for fleets of motor cars and loudspeakers to saturate the cities and villages of Germany, along with funds for Nazi party organizations, youth groups, and paramilitary forces. In the July 1932 campaign, Hitler had sufficient funds to fly to 50 cities in the last two weeks alone. 
In that same campaign, the Nazis received 37.3% of the vote, the highest they ever won in a democratic national election. They never had a majority of the people on their side. To the extent that they had any kind of reliable base, it generally was among the more affluent members of society. In addition, elements of the petty bourgeoisie and the many lumpen proletariats served as strong-arm party thugs, organized into the SA stormtroopers. But the great majority of the organized working class supported the communists or social democrats to the very end. In the December 1932 election, three candidates ran for president, the conservative incumbent Field Marshal von Hindenburg, the Nazi candidate Adolf Hitler, and the Communist Party candidate Ernst Thalmann. In his campaign, Thalmann argued that a vote for Hindenburg amounted to a vote for Hitler, and that Hitler would lead Germany into war. The bourgeois press, including the Social Democrats, denounced this view as Moscow-inspired. Hindenburg was re-elected while the Nazis dropped approximately 2 million votes in the Reichstag election as compared to their peak of over 13.7 million. True to form, the Social Democrat leaders refused the Communist Party's proposal to form an 11th-hour coalition against Nazism. As in many other countries, past and present, so in Germany, the Social Democrats would sooner ally themselves with the reactionary right than make common cause with the Reds. Meanwhile, a number of right-wing parties coalesced behind the Nazis, and in January 1933, just weeks after the election, Hindenburg invited Hitler to become chancellor. Upon assuming state power, Hitler and his Nazis pursued a politico-economic agenda not unlike Mussolini's. They crushed organized labor and eradicated all elections, opposition parties, and independent publications. Hundreds of thousands of opponents were imprisoned, tortured, or murdered. In Germany, as in Italy, the communists endured the severest political repression of all groups. Here were two peoples, the Italians and Germans, with different histories, cultures, and languages, and supposedly different temperaments, who ended up with the same repressive solutions because of the compelling similarities of economic power and class conflict that prevailed in their respective countries. In such diverse countries as Lithuania, Croatia, Romania, Hungary, and Spain, a similar fascist pattern emerged to do its utmost to save big capital from the impositions of democracy. Whom did the fascists support? There is a vast literature on who supported the Nazis, but relatively little on whom the Nazis supported after they came to power. This is in keeping with the tendency of conventional scholarship to avoid the entire subject of capitalism whenever something unfavorable might be said about it. Whose interests did Mussolini and Hitler support? In both Italy in the 1920s and Germany in the 1930s, old industrial evils thought to have passed permanently into history re-emerged as the conditions of labor deteriorated precipitously. In the name of saving society from the Red Menace, unions and strikes were outlawed. Union property and farm cooperatives were confiscated and handed over to rich private owners. Minimum wage laws, overtime pay, and factory safety regulations were abolished. Speed-ups became commonplace. Dismissals or imprisonment awaited those workers who complained about unsafe or inhumane work conditions. Workers toiled longer hours for less pay. The already modest wages were severely cut 
in Germany by 25 to 40 percent, in Italy by 50 percent. In Italy, child labor was reintroduced. To be sure, a few crumbs were thrown to the populace. There were free concerts and sporting events, some meager social programs, a dole for the unemployed financed mostly by contributions from working people, and showy public works projects designed to evoke civic pride. Both Mussolini and Hitler showed their gratitude to their big business patrons by privatizing many perfectly solvent state-owned steel mills, power plants, banks, and steamship companies. Both regimes dipped heavily into the public treasury to refloat or subsidize heavy industry. Agribusiness farming was expanded and heavily subsidized. Both states guaranteed a return on the capital invested by giant corporations while assuming most of the risks and losses on investments. As is often the case with reactionary regimes, public capital was raided by private capital. At the same time, taxes were increased for the general populace but lowered or eliminated for the rich and big business. Inheritance taxes on the wealthy were greatly reduced or abolished altogether. The result of all this? In Italy during the 1930s, the economy was gripped by recession, a staggering public debt, and widespread corruption. But industrial profits rose, and the armaments factories busily rolled out weapons in preparation for the war to come. In Germany, unemployment was cut in half with the considerable expansion of armaments jobs, but overall poverty increased because of the drastic wage cuts. And from 1935 to 1943, industrial profits increased substantially, while the net income of corporate leaders climbed 46%. During the radical 1930s, in the United States, Great Britain, and Scandinavia, upper-income groups experienced a modest decline in their share of the national income, but in Germany, the top 5% enjoyed a 15% gain. Despite this record, most writers have ignored fascism's close collaboration with big business. Some even argue that business was not a beneficiary, but a victim of fascism. Angelo Corevilla a Hoover Institute conservative scribe blithely announced, If fascism means anything, it means government ownership and control of business. Thus, fascism is misrepresented as a mutant form of socialism. In fact, if fascism means anything, it means all-out government support for business and severe repression of anti-business, pro-labor forces. Is fascism merely a dictatorial force in the service of capitalism? That may not be all it is, but that certainly is an important part of fascism's raison d'etre, the function Hitler himself was referring to when he talked about saving the industrialists and bankers from Bolshevism. It is a subject that deserves far more attention than it has received. While the fascists might have believed they were saving the plutocrats from the Reds, in fact, the revolutionary left was never strong enough to take state power in either Italy or Germany. Popular forces, however, were strong enough to cut into profit rates and interfere with the capital accumulation process. This frustrated capitalism's attempts to resolve its internal contradictions by shifting more and more of its costs onto the backs of the working populace. Revolution or no revolution, this democratic working-class resistance was troublesome to the moneyed interests. Along with serving the capitalists, fascist leaders served themselves— getting in on the money at every opportunity. Their personal greed and their class loyalties were two sides of the same coin. Mussolini and his cohorts lived lavishly, 
cavorting within the higher circles of wealth and aristocracy. Nazi officials and SS commanders amassed personal fortunes by plundering conquered territories and stealing from concentration camp inmates and other political victims. Huge amounts were made from secretly owned, well-connected businesses and from contracting out camp slave labor to industrial firms like IG Farben and Krupp. Hitler is usually portrayed as an ideological fanatic, uninterested in crass material things. In fact, he accumulated an immense fortune, much of it in questionable ways. He expropriated artworks from the public domain. He stole enormous sums from Nazi party coffers. He invented a new concept, the personality right, that enabled him to charge a small fee for every postage stamp with his picture on it, a venture that made him hundreds of millions of marks. The greatest source of Hitler's wealth was a secret slush fund to which leading German industrialists regularly donated. Hitler knew that as long as German industry was making money, his private money sources would be inexhaustible. Thus, he'd see to it that German industry was never better off than under his rule, by launching, for one thing, gigantic armament projects, or what we today would call fat defense contracts. Far from being the ascetic, Hitler lived self-indulgently. During his entire tenure in office, he got special rulings from the German tax office that allowed him to avoid paying income or property taxes. He had a motor pool of limousines, private apartments, country homes, a vast staff of servants, and a majestic estate in the Alps. His happiest times were spent entertaining European royalty, including the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, who numbered among his enthusiastic admirers. Kudos for Adolf and Benito. Italian fascism and German Nazism had their admirers within the U.S. business community and the corporate-owned press. Bankers, publishers, and industrialists, including the likes of Henry Ford, traveled to Rome and Berlin to pay homage, receive medals, and strike profitable deals. Many did their utmost to advance the Nazi war effort, sharing military-industrial secrets and engaging in secret transactions with the Nazi government even after the United States entered the war. During the 1920s and early 1930s, major publications like Fortune, The Wall Street Journal, Saturday Evening Post, New York Times, Chicago Tribune, and Christian Science Monitor hailed Mussolini as the man who rescued Italy from anarchy and radicalism. They spun rhapsodic fantasies of a resurrected Italy, where poverty and exploitation had suddenly disappeared, where reds had been vanquished, harmony reigned, and black shirts protected a new democracy. The Italian language press and the United States eagerly joined the course. The two most influential newspapers, L'Italia of San Francisco, financed largely by A.P. Giannini's Bank of America, and Il Progresso of New York, owned by multimillionaire Generoso Pope, looked favorably on the fascist regime and suggested that the United States could benefit from a similar social order. Some dissenters refused to join the We Adore Benito chorus. The nation reminded its readers that Mussolini was not saving democracy, but destroying it. Progressives of all stripes and various labor leaders denounced fascism. But their critical sentiments received little exposure in the U.S. corporate media. As with Mussolini, so with Hitler. 
The press did not look too unkindly upon Der Führer's Nazi dictatorship. There was a strong give Adolf a chance contingent, some of it greased by Nazi money. In exchange for more positive coverage in the Hearst newspapers, for instance, the Nazis paid almost ten times the standard subscription rate for Hearst's INS wire service. In return, William Randolph Hearst instructed his correspondents in Germany to file friendly reports about Hitler's regime. Those who refused were transferred or fired. Hearst newspapers even opened their pages to occasional guest columns by prominent Nazi leaders like Alfred Rosenberg and Hermann Göring. By the mid to late 1930s, Italy and Germany, allied with Japan, another industrial latecomer, were aggressively seeking a share of the world's markets and colonial booty, an expansionism that brought them increasingly into conflict with more established Western capitalist nations like Great Britain, France, and the United States. As the clouds of war gathered, U.S. press opinion about the Axis powers took on a decisively critical tone. The Rational Use of Irrational Ideology some writers stress the irrational features of fascism. By doing so, they overlook the rational political-economic functions that fascism performed. Much of politics is the rational manipulation of irrational symbols. Certainly, this is true of fascist ideology, whose emotive appeals have served a class-control function. First there was the cult of the leader in Italy, Il Duce in Germany, der Führerprinzip. With leader worship there came the idolatry of the state. As Mussolini wrote, The fascist conception of life stresses the importance of the state and accepts the individual only insofar as his interests coincide with those of the state. Fascism preaches the authoritarian rule of an all-encompassing state and a supreme leader. It extols the harsher human impulses of conquest and domination while rejecting egalitarianism democracy, collectivism, and pacifism as doctrines of weakness and decadence. A dedication to peace, Mussolini wrote, is hostile to fascism. Perpetual peace, he claimed in 1934, is a depressing doctrine. Only in cruel struggle and conquest do men or nations achieve their highest realization. Though words are beautiful things, he asserted. Rifles, machine guns, planes, and cannons are still more beautiful. And on another occasion he wrote, War alone puts the stamp of nobility upon the peoples who have the courage to meet it. Ironically, most Italian army conscripts had no stomach for Mussolini's wars, tending to remove themselves from battle once they discovered that the other side was using live ammunition. Fascist doctrine stresses monistic values, ein Volk, ein Reich, ein Führer, one people, one rule, one leader. The people are no longer to be concerned with class divisions, but must see themselves as part of a harmonious whole, rich and poor as one, a view that supports the economic status quo by cloaking the ongoing system of class exploitation. This is in contrast to a left agenda that advocates the articulation of popular demands and a sharpened awareness of social injustice and class struggle. This monism is buttressed by atavistic appeals to the mythical roots of the people. For Mussolini, it was the grandeur that was Rome, for Hitler the ancient Volk. A play written by a pro-Nazi Hans Jorst, entitled Schlageter, and performed widely throughout Germany soon after the Nazis seized power, Hitler attended the opening night in Berlin, 
pits Volk mysticism against class politics. The enthusiastic August is talking to his father, Schneider. August. You won't believe it, Papa, but the young people don't pay much attention to these old slogans anymore. The class struggle is dying out. Schneider. So? And what do you have, then? August. The Volk community. Schneider. And that's a slogan? August. No, it's an experience. Schneider. My God. Our class struggle. Our strikes. They weren't an experience, eh? Socialism, the international, were they fantasies, maybe? August. They were necessary, but they are historical experiences. Schneider. So, and the future, therefore, will have your Volk community. Tell me, how do you actually envision it? Poor, rich, healthy, upper, lower? All this ceases with you, eh? August. Look, Papa. Upper, lower, poor, rich. That always exists. It is only the importance one places on that question that's decisive. To us, life is not chopped up into working hours and furnished with price charts. Rather, we believe in human existence as a whole. None of us regards making money as the most important thing. We want to serve. The individual is a corpuscle in the bloodstream of his people. The son's comments are revealing. The class struggle is dying out. Papa's concern about the abuses of class power and class injustice is facilely dismissed as just a frame of mind with no objective reality. It is even falsely equated with a crass concern for money. None of us regard making money as important. Presumably, matters of wealth are to be left to those who have it. We have something better, August is saying. A totalistic, monistic experience as a people, all of us rich and poor, working together for some greater glory. Conveniently overlooked is how the glorious sacrifices are borne by the poor for the benefit of the rich. The position enunciated in that play and another Nazi propaganda does not reveal an indifference to class. Quite the contrary, it represents a keen awareness of class interests, a well-engineered effort to mask and mute the strong class consciousness that existed among workers in Germany. In the crafty denial, we often find the hidden admission. Patriarchy and Pseudo-Revolution Fascism's national chauvinism, racism, sexism, and patriarchal values also served a conservative class interest. Fascist doctrine, especially the Nazi variety, makes an explicit commitment to racial supremacy. Human attributes, including class status, are said to be inherited through blood. One's position in the social structure is taken as a measure of one's innate nature. Genetics and biology are marshaled to justify the existing class structure, not unlike what academic racists today are doing with their bell curve theories and warmed-over eugenics claptrap. Along with race and class inequality, fascism supports homophobia and sexual inequality. Among Nazism's earliest victims were a group of Nazi homosexuals, leaders of the SA stormtroopers. When complaints about the openly homosexual behavior of SA leader Ernst Röhm and some of his brown-shirted stormtroopers continued to reach Hitler after he seized power, he issued an official statement contending that the issue belonged purely to the private domain and that an SA officer's private life cannot be an object of scrutiny unless it conflicts with basic principles of national socialist ideology. The paramilitary SA have been used to win the battle of the streets against trade unionists and Reds. The stormtroopers acted as a pseudo-revolutionary force, 
that appealed to mass grievances with a rhetorical condemnation of finance capital. When SA memberships skyrocketed to 3 million in 1933, this was too discomforting to the industrial barons and military patricians, SA street brawlers who denounced bourgeois decadence and called for sharing the wealth and completing the Nazi revolution would have to be dealt with. Having used the SA to take state power, Hitler then used the state to neutralize the SA. Now suddenly, Rome's homosexuality did conflict with national socialist ideology. In truth, the SA had to be decapitated not because its leaders were homosexual, though that was the reason given, but because it threatened to turn into a serious problem. Rome and about 300 other SA members were executed, not all of whom were gay. Among the victims was veteran Nazi propagandist Gregor Strasser, who was suspected of leftist leanings. Of course, many Nazis were virulently homophobic. One of the most powerful of all, SS leader Heinrich Himmler, saw homosexuals as a threat to German manhood and the moral fiber of Teutonic peoples, for a homosexual sissy would not procreate or make a good soldier. Himmler's homophobia and sexism came together when he announced, If a man just looks at a girl in America, he can be forced to marry her or pay damages. Therefore, men protect themselves in the USA by turning to homosexuals. Women in the USA are like battle axes. They hack away at males. Thus spoke one of the great minds of Nazism. In time, Himmler succeeded in extending the oppression of gays beyond the SA leadership. Thousands of gay civilians perished in SS concentration camps. In societies throughout the ages, if able to find the opportunity, women have attempted to limit the number of children they bear. This poses a potential problem for a fascist patriarchy that needs vast numbers of soldiers and armaments workers. Women are less able to assert their procreative rights if kept subservient and dependent. So fascist ideology extolled patriarchal authority. Every man must be a husband, a father, and a soldier, Il Duce said. Woman's greatest calling was to cultivate her domestic virtues, devotedly tending to the needs of her family while bearing as many offspring for the state as she could. Patriarchal ideology was linked to a conservative class ideology that saw all forms of social equality as a threat to hierarchical control and privilege. The patriarchy buttressed the plutocracy. If women get out of line, what will happen to the family? And if the family goes, the entire social structure is threatened. What then will happen to the state and to the dominant class's authority, privileges, and wealth? The fascists were big on what today is called family values, though most of the top Nazi leaders could hardly be described as devoted family men. In Nazi Germany, racism and anti-Semitism served to misdirect legitimate grievances toward convenient scapegoats. Anti-Semitic propaganda was cleverly tailored to appeal to different audiences. Superpatriots were told that the Jew was an alien internationalist. Unemployed workers were told that their nemesis was the Jewish capitalist and Jewish banker. For debtor farmers, it was the Jewish usurer. For the middle class, it was the Jewish union leader and Jewish communist. Here again, we have a consciously rational use of irrational images. The Nazis might have been crazy, but they were not stupid. What distinguishes fascism from ordinary right-wing patriarchal autocracies is the way it attempts to cultivate a revolutionary aura. 
Fascism offers a beguiling mix of revolutionary-sounding mass appeals and reactionary class politics. The Nazi Party's full name was the National Socialist German Workers' Party, a left-sounding name. As already noted, the SA stormtroopers had a militant share-the-wealth strain in their ranks that was suppressed by Hitler after he took state power. Both the Italian fascists and the Nazis made a conscious effort to steal the left's thunder. There were mass mobilizations, youth organizations, work brigades, rallies, parades, banners, symbols, and slogans. There was much talk about a Nazi revolution that would revitalize society, sweeping away the old order and building the new. For this reason, mainstream writers feel free to treat fascism and communism as totalitarian twins. It is a case of reducing essence to form. The similarity in form is taken as reason enough to blur the vast difference in actual class content. Writers like A. James Gregor and William Ebenstein, countless Western political leaders and others who supposedly are on the democratic left, regularly lump fascism with communism. Thus, Noam Chomsky claims, The rise of corporations was in fact a manifestation of the same phenomena that led to fascism and Bolshevism, which sprang out of the same totalitarian soil. But in the Italy and Germany of that day, most workers and peasants made a firm distinction between fascism and communism, as did industrialists and bankers who supported fascism out of fear and hatred of communism, a judgment based largely on class realities. Years ago, I used to say that fascism never succeeded in solving the irrational contradictions of capitalism. Today, I am of the opinion that it did accomplish that goal, but only for the capitalists, not for the populace. Fascism never intended to offer a social solution that would serve the general populace, only a reactionary one, forcing all the burdens and losses onto the working public. Divested of its ideological and organizational paraphernalia, fascism is nothing more than a final solution to the class struggle, the totalistic submergence and exploitation of democratic forces for the benefit and profit of higher financial circles. Fascism is a false revolution. It cultivates the appearance of popular politics and a revolutionary aura without offering a genuine revolutionary class content. It propagates a new order while serving the same old moneyed interests. Its leaders are not guilty of confusion but of deception. That they work hard to mislead the public does not mean they themselves are misled. Friendly to Fascism One of the things conveniently overlooked by mainstream writers is the way Western capitalist states have cooperated with fascism. In his collaborationist efforts, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain was positively cozy with the Nazis. He, and many of his class, saw Hitler as a bulwark against communism in Germany, and Nazi Germany as a bulwark against communism in Europe. After World War II, the Western capitalist allies did little to eradicate fascism from Italy or Germany, except for putting some of the top leaders on trial at Nuremberg. By 1947, German conservatives began to depict the Nuremberg prosecutors as dupes of the Jews and communists. In Italy, the strong partisan movement that had waged armed struggle against fascism was soon treated as suspect and unpatriotic. Within a year after the war, Almost all Italian fascists were released from prison 
while hundreds of communists and other leftist partisans who had been fighting the Nazi occupation were jailed. History was turned on its head, transforming the black shirts into victims and the reds into criminals. Allied authorities assisted in these measures. Under the protection of U.S. occupation authorities, the police, courts, military, security agencies, and bureaucracy remained largely staffed by those who had served the former fascist regimes or by their ideological recruits, as is true to this day. The perpetrators of the Holocaust murdered six million Jews, half a million gypsies, thousands of homosexuals, several million Ukrainians, Russians, Poles, and others, and got away with it, in good part because the very people who were supposed to investigate these crimes were themselves complicit. In comparison, when the communists took over in East Germany, they removed some 80% of the judges, teachers, and officials for their Nazi collaboration. They imprisoned thousands, and they executed 600 Nazi party leaders for war crimes. They would have shot more of the war criminals had not so many fled to the protective embrace of the West. What happened to the U.S. businesses that collaborated with fascism? The Rockefeller family's Chase National Bank used its Paris office in Vichy, France, to help launder German money to facilitate Nazi international trade during the war, and did so with complete impunity. Corporations like DuPont, Ford, General Motors, and ITT owned factories in enemy countries that produced fuel, tanks, and planes that wreaked havoc on Allied forces. After the war, instead of being prosecuted for treason, ITT collected $27 million from the U.S. government for war damages inflicted on its German plants by Allied bombings. General Motors collected over $33 million. Pilots were given instructions not to hit factories in Germany that were owned by U.S. firms. Thus, Cologne was almost leveled by Allied bombing, but its Ford plant, providing military equipment for the Nazi army, was untouched. Indeed, German civilians began using the plant as an air raid shelter. For decades, U.S. leaders have done their part in keeping Italian fascism alive. From 1945 to 1975, U.S. government agencies gave an estimated $75 million to right-wing organizations in Italy, including some with close ties to the neo-fascist Movimento Sociale Italiano, MSI. In 1975, then-Secretary of State Henry Kissinger met with MSI leader Giorgio Almirante in Washington to discuss what alternatives might be considered should the Italian communists win the elections and take control of the government. Hundreds of Nazi war criminals found a haven in the United States, either living in comfortable anonymity or actively employed by U.S. intelligence agencies during the Cold War, and otherwise enjoying the protection of high-placed individuals. Some of them found their way onto the Republican presidential campaign committees of Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, and George Bush. In Italy, from 1969 to 1974, high-ranking elements in Italian military intelligence and civilian intelligence agencies, members of P2, a secret lodge of upper-class reactionaries, pro-fascist Vatican officials, and top military brass, and Gladio, a NATO-inspired anti-communist mercenary force, embarked upon a concerted campaign of terror and sabotage known as the Strategy of Tension. 
Other participants included a secret neo-fascist group called the Ortine Nuovo, NATO officials, members of the Carabinieri, mafia bosses, 30 generals, 8 admirals, and influential Freemasons like Licio Gelli, a fascist war criminal recruited by U.S. intelligence in 1944. The terrorism was aided and abetted by the international security apparatus, including the CIA. In 1995, the CIA refused to cooperate with an Italian parliamentary commission investigating the strategy of tension. The terrorist conspirators carried out a series of kidnappings, assassinations, and bombing massacres, Istraghi, including the explosion that killed 85 people and injured some 200, many seriously, in the Bologna train station in August 1980. As subsequent judicial investigations concluded, the strategy of tension was not a simple product of neo-fascism, but the consequence of a larger campaign conducted by state security forces against the growing popularity of the democratic parliamentary left. The objective was to combat by any means necessary the electoral gains of the Italian Communist Party and create enough fear and terror in the population so as to undermine the multi-party social democracy and replace it with an authoritarian presidential republic, or in any case, a stronger and more stable executive. In the 1980s, scores of people were murdered in Germany, Belgium, and elsewhere in Western Europe by extreme rightists in the service of state security agencies. These acts of terrorism went mostly unreported in the U.S. corporate-owned media. As with the earlier strategy of tension in Italy, the attacks were designed to create enough popular fear and uncertainty so as to undermine the existing social democracies. Authorities in these Western European countries and the United States have done little to expose neo-Nazi networks. As the whiffs of fascism develop into an undeniable stench, we are reminded that Hitler's progeny are still with us and that they have dangerous links with each other and within the security agencies of various Western capitalist nations. In Italy, in 1994, the national elections were won by the National Alliance, a broadened version of the neo-fascist MSI in coalition with the League of Northern Separatists, and Forza Italia, a quasi-fascist movement headed by industrialist and media tycoon Silvio Berlusconi. The National Alliance played on resentments regarding unemployment, taxes, and immigration. It called for a single tax rate for rich and poor alike, school vouchers, a stripping away of the social benefits, and the privatization of most services. The Italian neo-fascists were learning from the U.S. reactionaries how to achieve fascism's class goals within the confines of quasi-democratic forms, use an upbeat, Reaganesque optimism, replace the jackbooted militarists with media-hyped crowd-pleasers, convince people that government is the enemy, especially its social service sector, while strengthening the repressive capacities of the state, instigate racist hostility and antagonisms between the resident population and immigrants, preach the mythical virtues of the free market, and pursue tax and spending measures that redistribute income upward. Conservatives in the Western nations utilize diluted forms of the fascist mass appeal. In the USA, they propagate populist-sounding appeals to the ordinary middle American while quietly pressing for measures that serve the interests of the wealthiest individuals and corporations. In 1996, right-wing Speaker of the House of Representatives Newt Gingrich, while proffering a new rollback agenda that supposedly would revitalize all of society, announced, 
I am a genuine revolutionary. Whether in Italy, Germany, the United States, or any other country, when the right offers a new revolution or a new order, it is in the service of the same old moneyed interests, leading down that well-trodden road of reaction and repression that so many third-world countries have been forced to take, the road those at the top want us all to travel. Chapter 2 Let Us Now Praise Revolution For most of this century, U.S. foreign policy has been devoted to the suppression of revolutionary governments and radical movements around the world. The turn of the 20th century found the McKinley administration in a war of attrition against the people of the Philippines, lasting from 1898 to 1902, with pockets of resistance continuing for years afterward. In that conflict, U.S. forces slaughtered some 200,000 Filipino women, men, and children. At about that same time, in conjunction with various European colonial powers, the United States invaded China to help suppress the Boxer Rebellion at substantial loss of life to the Chinese rebels. U.S. forces took over Hawaii, Cuba, Puerto Rico, and Guam, and in the following decades invaded Mexico, Soviet Russia, Nicaragua, Honduras, the Dominican Republic, and other countries, actions that usually inflicted serious losses upon the populations of these countries. The Costs of Counter-Revolution From grade school through grad school, few of us are taught anything about these events except to be told that U.S. forces must intervene in this or that country in order to protect U.S. interests, thwart aggression, and defend our national security. U.S. leaders fashioned other convenient rationales for their interventions abroad. The public was told that the peoples of various countries were in need of our civilizing guidance and desired the blessings of democracy, peace, and prosperity. To accomplish this, of course, it might be necessary to kill off considerable numbers of the more recalcitrant among them. Such were the measures our policymakers were willing to pursue in order to uplift lesser peoples. The emergence of major communist powers like the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China lent another dimension to U.S. global counter-revolutionary policy. The communists were depicted as evil incarnate, demonized conspirators who sought power for power's sake. The United States had to be everywhere to counteract this spreading cancer, we were told. In the name of democracy, U.S. leaders waged a merciless war against revolutionaries in Indochina for the better part of 20 years. They dropped many times more tons of explosives on Vietnam than were used throughout World War II by all combatants combined. Testifying before a congressional committee, former CIA director William Colby admitted that under his direction, U.S. forces and their South Vietnam collaborators carried out the selective assassination of 24,000 Vietnamese dissidents in what was known as the Phoenix Program. His associate, the South Vietnamese Minister of Information, maintained that 40,000 was a more accurate estimate. U.S. policymakers and their media mouthpieces judged the war a mistake because the Vietnamese proved incapable of being properly instructed by B-52 bomber raids and death squads. By prevailing against this onslaught, the Vietnamese supposedly demonstrated that they were unprepared for our democratic institutions. In pursuit of counter-revolution and in the name of freedom, U.S. forces or U.S.-supported surrogate forces 
slaughtered 2 million North Koreans in a three-year war, 3 million Vietnamese, over 500,000 in aerial wars over Laos and Cambodia, over 1,500,000 in Angola, over 1 million in Mozambique, over 500,000 in Afghanistan, 500,000 to 1 million in Indonesia, 200,000 in East Timor, 100,000 in Nicaragua, combining the Somoza and Reagan eras, over 100,000 in Guatemala, plus an additional 40,000 disappeared, over 700,000 in Iraq, over 60,000 in El Salvador, 30,000 in the Dirty War of Argentina, though the government admits to only 9,000, 35,000 in Taiwan, when the Kuomintang military arrived from China, 20,000 in Chile, and many thousands in Haiti, Panama, Grenada, Brazil, South Africa, Western Sahara, Zaire, Turkey, and dozens of other countries in what amounts to a free-market world holocaust. Official sources either deny these U.S.-sponsored mass murders or justify them as necessary measures that had to be taken against an implacable communist foe. Anti-communist propaganda saturated our airwaves, schools, and political discourse. Despite repeated and often factitious references to the tyranny of the Red Menace, the anti-communist opinion makers never spelled out what communists actually did in the way of socioeconomic policy. This might explain why, despite decades of red-bashing propaganda, most Americans, including many who number themselves among the political cognoscenti, still cannot offer an informed statement about the social policies of communist societies. The anti-red propagandists uttered nary a word about how revolutionaries in Russia, China, Cuba, Vietnam, Nicaragua, and other countries nationalized the lands held by rich, exploitative landlords and initiated mass programs for education, health, housing, and jobs. Not a word about how their efforts advanced the living standards and life chances of hundreds of millions in countries that had long suffered under the yoke of feudal oppression and Western colonial pillage, an improvement in mass well-being never before witnessed in history. No matter that the revolutionaries in various Asian, African, and Latin American countries enjoyed popular support and were willing to pursue a neutralist course in East-West relations rather than place themselves under the hegemony of either Moscow or Peking, they still were targeted for a counter-revolutionary battering. From oppressing communists because they might be revolutionaries, it was a short step to opposing revolutionaries because they might be communists. The real sin of revolutionaries, communist or not, was that they championed the laboring classes against the wealthy few. They advocated changes in the distribution of class power and the way wealth was produced and used. They wanted less individualistic advancement at the expense of the many and collective betterment for the entire working populace. Presumptions of Power Ruling classes throughout the world hate and fear communism, not for its lack of political democracy, but because it attempts to establish economic democracy by building an egalitarian, collectivist social system, though they rarely come right out and say as much. This counter-revolutionary interventionist policy rests on several dubious assumptions that might be stated and rebutted as follows. 1. U.S. leaders have the right to define the limits of socioeconomic development within other nations. Not true. Under no canon of international law 
or any other legal stricture do the leaders of this country have the right to ordain what kind of economic system or mode of social development another country may adopt. No more right than do the leaders of other countries have to dictate such things to the United States. In practice, the option to dictate is exercised by the strong over the weak, a policy of might, not right. 2. The United States must play a counter-revolutionary containment role in order to protect our national interests. This is true only if we equate our national interests with the investment interests of high finance. U.S. interventionism has been very effective in building neo-imperialism, keeping the land, labor, natural resources, and markets of third-world countries available at bargain prices to multinational corporations. But these corporate interests do not represent the interests of the U.S. people. The public pays for the huge military budgets and endures the export of its jobs to foreign labor markets, the inflow of thousands of impoverished immigrants who compete for scarce employment and housing, and various other costs of empire. Furthermore, revolutionary governments like Cuba, Libya, Vietnam, and North Korea were, and still are, eager to trade and maintain peaceful relations with this country. These countries do not threaten the national security of the United States or its people, but the overseas interests of global capitalism. If allowed to multiply in numbers, countries with an alternative socialist system, one that uses the land, labor, capital, and natural resources in collectivist ways, placing people before profits, would eventually undermine global capitalism. 3. The United States has a moral obligation to guarantee the stability of nations that are undergoing democratic development but are threatened by revolutionaries and terrorists. In fact, most U.S. interventions are on behalf of corrupt and self-serving oligarchs and anti-democratic militarists who take power with or without the benefit of U.S.-sponsored showcase elections. Third-world oligarchs are frequently educated at elite U.S. universities or end up on the CIA payroll, as do their police chiefs and military officers, many of whom receive training in torture and assassination at U.S. counterinsurgency institutions. 4. Fundamental social change should be peacefully pursued within the established order of nations rather than by revolutionary turmoil. U.S. policymakers maintain that they favor eliminating mass poverty in poorer countries and that they are not opposed to the laudatory objectives of social revolution but to its violent methods. They say that transformations must be effected gradually and peacefully preferably through private investment and the benign workings of the free market. In fact, corporate investment is more likely to deter rather than encourage reform by preempting markets and restructuring the local economy to fit foreign capital extraction needs. International finance capital has no interest in bettering the life chances of third-world peoples. Generally, as Western investments have increased in the third world, life conditions for the ordinary peasants and workers have grown steadily more desperate. Whose violence? People throughout the world do not need more corporate investments. Rather, they need the opportunity to wrest back their land, labor, natural resources, and markets in order to serve their own social needs. Such a revolutionary development invites fierce opposition from apostles of the free market, 
whose violent resistance to social change makes peaceful transformation impossible to contemplate. Even in countries like the United States, where reforms of limited scope have been achieved without revolution, the peaceful means employed have entailed popular struggle and turmoil, and a considerable amount of violence and bloodshed, almost all of it inflicted by police and security forces. That last point frequently goes unmentioned in discussions about the ethics of revolutionary violence. The very concept of revolutionary violence is somewhat falsely cast, since most of the violence comes from those who attempt to prevent reform, not from those struggling for reform. By focusing on the violent rebellions of the downtrodden, we overlook the much greater repressive force and violence utilized by the ruling oligarchs to maintain the status quo, including armed attacks against peaceful demonstrations, mass arrests, torture, destruction of opposition organizations, suppression of dissident publications, death squad assassinations, the extermination of whole villages, and the like. Most social revolutions begin peacefully. Why would it be otherwise? Who would not prefer to assemble and demonstrate rather than engage in mortal combat against pitiless forces that enjoy every advantage in mobility and firepower? Revolutions in Russia, China, Vietnam, and El Salvador all began peacefully, with crowds of peasants and workers launching nonviolent protests only to be met with violent oppression from the authorities. Peaceful protest and reform are exactly what the people are denied by the ruling oligarchs, the dissidents who continue to fight back, who try to defend themselves from the oligarchs' repressive fury, are then called violent revolutionaries and terrorists. For those local and international elites who maintain control over most of the world's wealth, social revolution is an abomination. Whether it be peaceful or violent is a question of no great moment to them. Peaceful reforms that infringe upon their profitable accumulations and threaten the class privileges are as unacceptable to them as the social upheaval imposed by revolution. Reforms that advance the conditions of life for the general public are not as materially intractable or as dependent on capital resources as we have been led to believe. There is no great mystery to building a health clinic or carrying out programs for food rationing, land redistribution, literacy, jobs, and housing. Such tasks are well within the capacity of any state, if there is the political will and a mobilization of popular class power. Consider Kerala, a state in India where the actions of popular organizations and mass movements have won important victories over the last 40 years against politico-economic oppression, generating a level of social development considerably better than that found in most of the Third World and accomplished without outside investment. Kerala has mass literacy, a lower birth rate and lower death rate than the rest of India, better public health services, fewer child workers, higher nutritional levels thanks to a publicly subsidized food rationing system, more enlightened legal support and educational programs for women, and some social security protections for working people and for the destitute and physically handicapped. In addition, the people of Kerala radically altered a complex and exploitative system of agrarian relations and won important victories against the more horrid forms of caste oppression. 
Though Kerala has no special sources of wealth, it has had decades of communist organizing and political struggle that reached and moved large numbers of people and breathed life into the state's democracy. Despite its relatively short periods in the leadership of government, it is the Communist Party that has set the basic legislative agenda of the people of Kerala, notes Indian scholar V.K. Ramachandran. All this is not to deny that many people in Kerala endure unacceptable conditions of poverty. Still, despite a low level of income and limited resources, the achievements wrought by democratic government intervention and propelled by mass action have been substantial representing the difference between a modestly supportable existence and utter misery. Many third-world peoples produced dedicated and capable popular organizations, as did the communists in Kerala, but they are usually destroyed by repressive state forces. In Kerala, popular agitation and input took advantage of democratic openings and in turn gave more social substance to the democracy. What is needed for social betterment is not international monetary fund loans or corporate investments, but political organization and democratic opportunity, and freedom from U.S.-sponsored state terrorism. U.S. foreign aid programs offer another example of how imperialist policy masquerades as social reform within third-world nations. Aid programs are not intended to affect serious social betterment. At best, they finance piecemeal projects of limited impact. More often, they are used to undermine local markets, drive small farmers off their land, build transportation and office facilities needed by outside investors, increase a country's debt and economic dependency, and further open its economy to multinational corporate penetration. Free Market for the Few Third-world revolutionaries are branded as the enemies of stability. Stability is a codeword for a society in which privileged social relations are securely entrenched. When popular forces mobilize against privilege and wealth, this causes instability, which is judged to be undesirable by U.S. policymakers and their faithful flax in the U.S. corporate media. Here we have a deceptive state of affairs— what poses as a U.S. commitment to peaceful, nonviolent change is really a commitment to the violent defense of an unjust, undemocratic, global capitalism. The U.S. national security state uses coercion and violence not in support of social reform but against it, all in the name of stability, counterterrorism, democracy, and of late and more honestly, the free market. When he was head of the State Department policy planning staff during the early years of the Cold War, the noted author George Kennan revealed the ruthless real politic mentality of those dedicated to social inequality within and between nations. Kennan maintained that a wealthy United States facing an impoverished world could not afford the luxury of altruism and world benefaction and should cease talking about vague and unreal objectives such as human rights the raising of the living standards, and democratization. The less we are hampered by idealistic slogans, the better. Speaking at a briefing for U.S. ambassadors to Latin America, Kennan remarked, The final answer might be an unpleasant one, but we should not hesitate before police repression by the local government. This is not shameful since the communists are essentially traitors. It is better to have a strong, that is, repressive regime in power 
than a liberal government if it is indulgent and relaxed and penetrated by communists. In a 1949 State Department intelligence report, Kennan wrote that communists were people who are committed to the belief that the government has direct responsibility for the welfare of the people, so they had to be dealt with harshly without regard for such niceties as democratization and human rights. It is said that the United States cannot renege on its commitments to other peoples and must continue as world leader. The rest of the world expects that of us. But the ordinary peoples of the world have never called for U.S. world leadership. Quite the contrary. They usually want the United States to go home and leave them to their own affairs. This is because U.S. commitments are not to the ordinary people of other lands, but to the privileged reactionary factions that are most accommodating to Western investors. As Kennan's remarks indicate, the U.S. policymaking establishment has been concerned not with advancing the welfare of impoverished peoples around the world, but with defeating whoever allies themselves with the common people, be they Reds or not. Whatever their grave shortcomings, do not U.S.-supported third-world rulers represent something better than the kind of tyranny that communists and revolutionary totalitarians bring? Academic cheerleaders for U.S. interventionism such as Samuel P. Huntington of Harvard University think so. However bad a given evil may be, a worse one is always possible and often likely, Huntington concludes, going on to defend as lesser evils the murderous regimes in Chile under Pinochet and South Africa under apartheid. We might recall Jean Kirkpatrick's distinction between benign authoritarian right-wing governments that supposedly are not all that brutal and allow gradual change, and horrid totalitarian left-wing ones that suppress everyone. The real distinction is that the right-wing government maintains the existing privileged order of the free market, keeping the world safe for the empowered hierarchies and wealthy classes of the world. In contrast, the left-wing totalitarians want to abolish exploitative property relations and create a more egalitarian economic system. Their favoring the have-nots over the haves is what makes them so despicable in the eyes of the latter. U.S. leaders claim to be offended by certain features of social revolutionary governments, such as one-party rule and the coercive implementation of revolutionary change, but one-party autocracy is acceptable if the government is rightist, that is, friendly toward private corporate investment, as in Turkey, Zaire, Guatemala, Indonesia, and dozens of other countries, including even communist countries that are sliding down the free market path such as China. We might recall that unforgettable moment when President George Bush, whose invasions of Panama and Iraq brought death and destruction to those nations, and who presided over a U.S. military empire that is the single greatest purveyor of violence in the world, lectured revolutionary leader Nelson Mandela on the virtues of nonviolence, even going so far as to quote Martin Luther King Jr. during Mandela's visit to Washington, D.C. in June 1990. Mandela's real sin, in Bush's eyes, was that he was part of a revolutionary movement that engaged in armed struggle against a violently repressive apartheid regime in South Africa. Bush's capacity for selective perception has all the unexamined audacity of a dominant ideology that condemns only those who act against an unjust status quo, not those who use violence to preserve it. It would have come as a great relief to people around the world if the President of the United States had adopted a policy of nonviolence for his own government. In fact, he had done no such thing.
the freedom of revolution. U.S. politico-economic leaders may find revolutionary reforms undesirable, but most people who live in revolutionary societies find them preferable to the old regimes and worth defending. The Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba was a fiasco not because of insufficient air coverage, but because the Cuban people closed ranks behind their government and threw back the invaders. Another captive people, the North Vietnamese, acted in similar fashion in the early 1970s. Instead of treating the severe destruction and disruptions caused by the U.S. aerial war against their country as a golden opportunity to overthrow Hanoi's yoke, they continued to support their beleaguered government at great sacrifice to themselves. And in South Vietnam, the National Liberation Front enjoyed tactical opportunities for supply and surprise, largely because it was supported by people in the countryside and cities. During the Vietnam era, Explanations as to why people sided with the communist revolutionaries came from some unexpected sources. U.S. Ambassador Henry Cabot Lodge admitted, The only people who have been doing anything for the little man, to lift him up, have been the communists. In a similar vein, one faithful propagator of the official line, columnist James Reston, wrote with surprising candor, Even Premier Kai, U.S.-sponsored dictator of South Vietnam, told this reporter today that the communists were closer to the people's yearnings for social justice and an independent life than his own government. What Lodge and Reston left unsaid was that the little man and the people's yearnings for social justice were the very things that U.S. leaders were bent on suppressing. Some people conclude that anyone who utters a good word about leftist one-party revolutions must harbor anti-democratic or Stalinist sentiments. But to applaud social revolutions is not to oppose political freedom. To the extent that revolutionary governments construct substantive alternatives for their people, they increase human options and freedom. There is no such thing as freedom in the abstract. There is freedom to speak openly and iconoclastically, freedom to organize a political opposition, freedom of opportunity to get an education and pursue a livelihood, freedom to worship as one chooses or not worship at all, freedom to live in healthful conditions, freedom to enjoy various social benefits, and so on. Most of what is called freedom gets its definition within a social context. Revolutionary governments extend a number of popular freedoms without destroying those freedoms that never existed in the previous regimes. They foster conditions necessary for national self-determination, economic betterment, the preservation of health and human life, and the end of many of the worst forms of ethnic, patriarchal, and class oppression. Regarding patriarchal oppression, consider the vastly improved condition of women in revolutionary Afghanistan and South Yemen before the counter-revolutionary repression in the 1990s, or in Cuba after the 1959 revolution as compared to before. U.S. policymakers argue that social revolutionary victory anywhere represents a diminution of freedom in the world. The assertion is false. The Chinese Revolution did not crush democracy. There was none to crush in that oppressively feudal regime. The Cuban Revolution did not destroy freedom. It destroyed a hateful U.S.-sponsored police state. The Algerian Revolution did not abolish national liberties. Precious few existed under French colonialism. The Vietnamese revolutionaries did not abrogate individual rights— no such rights were available under the U.S.-supported puppet governments of Bao Dai, Diem, and Kai.
Of course, revolutions do limit the freedoms of the corporate property class and other privileged interests. The freedom to invest privately without regard to human and environmental costs. The freedom to live in obscene opulence while paying workers starvation wages. The freedom to treat the state as a private agency in the service of a privileged coterie. The freedom to employ child labor and child prostitutes. The freedom to treat women as chattel. And so on. Today, no one in U.S. policy circles worries about the political economic oppression suffered in dozens of right wing client states. Their professed desire to bring Western political democracy to nations that have had revolutions rarely extends to free market autocracies, and the grudging moves toward political democracy occasionally made in these autocracies come only through popular pressure and rebellion, and only with the unspoken understanding that democratic governance will not infringe substantially upon the interests of the moneyed class. What measure of pain? Is the pain of revolution worth the gain? Cost-benefit accounting is a complicated business when applied to social transitions. But have we ever bothered to compare the violence of revolution against the violence that preceded it? I do not know how one measures the price of historical victories, said Robert Heilbronner. I only know that the way in which we ordinarily keep the books of history is wrong. We make no tally of the generations claimed by that combination of economic exploitation and political suppression, so characteristic of the ancien regimes, the hapless victims of flood and famine and the Yangtze Valley of yesterday, the child prostitutes found dead in the back alleys of old Shanghai, the muziks stricken by cold and starvation across the frozen steppes of Russia. And what if today? No one is tallying the thousands of nameless victims who succumbed to U.S.-trained torturers in Latin America, the hundreds of villages burned by counterinsurgency forces, the millions who are driven from their ancestral lands and sentenced to permanently stunted and malnourished lives, the millions more who perish in the desperate misery and congestion of shanty slums and internment camps. Their sufferings go unrecorded and are not figured in the balance when the revolution meets out justice to erstwhile oligarchs and oppressors or commits excesses and abuses of its own. And how do we measure the pain of the tens of millions of children throughout the world, many as young as six and seven, who are forced to work 70 hours a week confined in ill-lit, poorly ventilated workshops under conditions reminiscent of the most horrific days of the Industrial Revolution? The General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, GATT, a sweeping, multinational free trade act that amounts to a carte blanche for global capitalism, offers no protection for children who are exploited, abused, overworked, and underpaid. During GATT negotiations, leaders of third-world countries successfully argued against placing any restrictions on child labor, arguing that children have always worked in their cultures and such traditional practices should be respected. To prohibit child labor would limit the free market and affect severe hardship on those poor families in which a child is often the only wage earner. Even if the long-standing practice of children helping out on farms is acceptable, assuming they are not overworked and are allowed to go to school, the practice of locking them into a hot box of a factory for 14 hours a day is something else. Furthermore, they may be the only wage earner because adult workers have been laid off in favor of children who are infinitely more exploitable and provide bigger profits for prosperous factory owners. 
Traveling across Cuba in 1959, immediately after the overthrow of the U.S.-supported right-wing Batista dictatorship, Mike Faulkner witnessed a spectacle of almost unrelieved poverty. The rural population lived in makeshift shacks without minimal sanitation. Malnourished children went barefoot in the dirt and suffered the familiar plague of parasites common to the Third World. There were almost no doctors or schools, and through much of the year, families that depended solely on the seasonal sugar harvest lived close to starvation. How does that victimization in pre-revolutionary Cuba measure against the much more widely publicized repression that came after the revolution, when Castro's communists executed a few hundred of the previous regime's police assassins and torturers, drove assorted upper-class money bags into exile, and intimidated various other opponents of radical reforms into silence. Today, Cuba is a different place. For all its mistakes and abuses, the Cuban Revolution brought sanitation, schools, health clinics, jobs, housing, and human services to a level not found throughout most of the Third World and in many parts of the First World. Infant mortality in Cuba has dropped from 60 per 1,000 in 1960 to 9.7 per 1,000 by 1991, while life expectancy rose from 55 to 75 in that same period. Smallpox, malaria, tuberculosis, typhoid, polio, and numerous other diseases have been wiped out by improved living standards and public health programs. Cuba has enjoyed a level of literacy higher than in the United States and a life expectancy that compares well with advanced industrial nations. Other peoples besides the Cubans have benefited. As Fidel Castro tells it, the Cuban Revolution has sent teachers, doctors, and workers to dozens of third-world countries without charging a penny. It shed its own blood fighting colonialism, fighting apartheid and fascism. At one point, we had 25,000 third-world students studying on scholarships. We still have many scholarship students from Africa and other countries. In addition, our country has treated more children 13,000 who were victims of the Chernobyl tragedy than all other countries put together. They don't talk about that, and that's why they blockade us, the country with the most teachers per capita of all countries in the world, including developed countries, the country with the most doctors per capita of all countries, one for every 214 inhabitants, the country with the most art instructors per capita of all countries in the world, the country with the most sports instructors in the world, that gives you an idea of the effort involved. A country where life expectancy is more than 75 years. Why are they blockading Cuba? Because no other country has done more for its people. It's the hatred of the ideas that Cuba represents. Cuba's sin in the eyes of global capitalists is not its lack of democracy. Most third-world capitalist regimes are far more repressive. Cuba's real sin is that it has tried to develop an alternative to the global capitalist system, an egalitarian socioeconomic order that placed corporate property under public ownership, abolished capitalist investors as a class entity, and put people before profits and national independence before IMF servitude. So a conservative think tank like the Heritage Foundation rated Cuba, along with Laos, Iraq, and North Korea, as countries with the lowest level of economic freedom. Countries with a high level of economic freedom were those that imposed little or no taxes or regulations on business and did without wage protections, price controls, environmental safeguards, and benefits for the poor. 
Economic freedom is the real concern of conservatives and plutocrats. The freedom to utilize vast sums of money to accumulate still vaster sums, regardless of the human and environmental costs. Mass productivity coupled with elitist distribution results in more wealth for the few and greater poverty for the many. So after two centuries of incredible technological development and unprecedented economic expansion, the number of people living in poverty in the capitalist world has grown more quickly than any other demographic cohort. The world's slum population has increased at a far greater rate than the total global population. Amazing growth in industrial productivity has been accompanied by increasingly desperate want, misery, and repression. In short, there is a causal link between vast concentrations of wealth and widespread poverty. The next time someone preaches the free market gospel of economic freedom and productivity, we need ask, for whose benefit and at whose cost? Those who show concern for the elites overthrown in the whirl of revolution should also keep in mind the hundreds of millions more who are obliterated by economic reactionism. If all rebellions were to be successfully repressed today and forever, free market autocracy's violence against humanity would be with us more unrestrained than ever, as is indeed happening. For these reasons, those of us who are genuinely concerned about democracy, social justice, and the survival of our planet should support rather than oppose popular revolutions. Chapter 3 Left Anti-Communism In the United States, for over a hundred years, the ruling interests tirelessly propagated anti-communism among the populace until it became more like a religious orthodoxy than a political analysis. During the Cold War, the anti-communist ideological framework could transform any data about existing communist societies into hostile evidence. If the Soviets refused to negotiate a point, they were intransigent and belligerent. If they appeared willing to make concessions, this was but a skillful ploy to put us off our guard. By opposing arms limitations, they would have demonstrated their aggressive intent. But when, in fact, they supported most armament treaties, it was because they were mendacious and manipulative. If the churches in the USSR were empty, this demonstrated that religion was suppressed, but if the churches were full, this meant that people were rejecting the regime's atheistic ideology. If the workers went on strike, as happened on infrequent occasions, this was evidence of their alienation from the collectivist system. If they didn't go on strike, this was because they were intimidated and lacked freedom. A scarcity of consumer goods demonstrated the failure of the economic system. An improvement in consumer supplies meant only that the leaders were attempting to placate a restive population and so maintain a firmer hold over them. If communists in the United States played an important role struggling for the rights of workers, the poor, African Americans, women, and others, this was only their guileful way of gathering support among disfranchised groups and gaining power for themselves. How one gained power by fighting for the rights of powerless groups was never explained. What we are dealing with is a non-falsifiable orthodoxy, so assiduously marketed by the ruling interests that it affected people across the entire political spectrum. Genuflection to Orthodoxy Many on the U.S. left have exhibited a Soviet bashing and red-baiting that matches anything on the right in its enmity and crudity. 
listen to Noam Chomsky holding forth about left intellectuals who try to rise to power on the backs of mass popular movements and then beat the people into submission. You start off as basically a Leninist who is going to be part of the red bureaucracy. You see later that power doesn't lie that way, and you very quickly become an ideologist of the right. We're seeing it right now in the former Soviet Union. The same guys who were communist thugs two years back are now running banks and are enthusiastic free marketeers and praising Americans. Chomsky's imagery is heavily indebted to the same U.S. corporate political culture he so frequently criticizes on other issues. In his mind, the revolution was betrayed by a coterie of communist thugs who merely hunger for power rather than wanting the power to end hunger. In fact, the communists did not very quickly switch to the right, but struggled in the face of a momentous onslaught to keep Soviet socialism alive for more than 70 years. And to be sure, in the Soviet Union's waning days, some like Boris Yeltsin crossed over to capitalist ranks, but others continued to resist free market incursions at great cost to themselves, many meeting their deaths during Yeltsin's violent repression of the Russian parliament in 1993. Some leftists and others fall back on the old stereotype of power-hungry Reds, who pursue power for power's sake without regard for actual social goals. If true, one wonders why, in country after country, these Reds side with the poor and powerless often at great risk and sacrifice to themselves, rather than reaping the rewards that come with serving the well-placed. For decades, many left-leaning writers and speakers in the United States have felt obliged to establish their credibility by indulging in anti-communist and anti-Soviet genuflection, seemingly unable to give a talk or write an article or book review on whatever political subject without injecting some anti-red sideswipe. The intent was, and still is, to distance themselves from the Marxist-Leninist left. Adam Hochschild, a liberal writer and publisher, warned those on the left who might be lackadaisical about condemning existing communist societies that they weaken their credibility. In other words, to be credible opponents of the Cold War, we first had to join in Cold War condemnations of communist societies. Ronald Radosh urged that the peace movement purge itself of communists so that it not be accused of being communist. If I understand, Radosh, to save ourselves from anti-communist witch hunts, we should ourselves become witch hunters. Purging the left of communists became a long-standing practice, having injurious effects on various progressive causes. For instance, in 1949, some 12 unions were ousted from the CIO because they had Reds in their leadership. The purge reduced CIO membership by some 1.7 million and seriously weakened its recruitment drives and political clout. In the late 1940s, to avoid being smeared as Reds, Americans for Democratic Action, ADA, a supposedly progressive group, became one of the most vocally anti-communist organizations. The strategy did not work. ADA and others on the left were still attacked for being communist or soft on communism by those on the right. Then and now, many on the left have failed to realize that those who fight for social change on behalf of the less privileged elements of society will be red-baited by conservative elites, whether they are communists or not. For ruling interests, it makes little difference whether their wealth and power is challenged by communist subversives or loyal American liberals. 
all are lumped together as more or less equally abhorrent. Even when attacking the right, left critics cannot pass up an opportunity to flash their anti-communist credentials. So Mark Green writes in a criticism of President Ronald Reagan that, when presented with a situation that challenges his conservative catechism, like an unyielding Marxist-Leninist, Reagan will change not his mind, but the facts. While professing a dedication to fighting dogmatism, both of the right and left, individuals who perform such de rigueur genuflections reinforce the anti-communist dogma. Red-baiting leftists contributed their share to the climate of hostility that has given U.S. leaders such a free hand in waging hot and cold wars against communist countries, and which even today makes a progressive or even liberal agenda difficult to promote. A prototypic red basher who pretended to be on the left was George Orwell. In the middle of World War II, as the Soviet Union was fighting for its life against the Nazi invaders at Stalingrad, Orwell announced that a willingness to criticize Russia and Stalin is the test of intellectual honesty. It is the only thing that from a literary intellectual's point of view is really dangerous. Safely ensconced within a virulently anti-communist society, Orwell, with Orwellian doublethink, characterized the condemnation of communism as a lonely, courageous act of defiance. Today, his ideological progeny are still at it, offering themselves as intrepid left critics of the left, waging a valiant struggle against imaginary Marxist-Leninist-Stalinist hordes. Sorely lacking within the U.S. left is any rational evaluation of the Soviet Union, a nation that endured a protracted civil war and a multinational foreign invasion in the very first years of its existence, and that two decades later threw back and destroyed the Nazi beast at enormous cost to itself. In the three decades after the Bolshevik Revolution, the Soviets made industrial advances equal to what capitalism took a century to accomplish, while feeding and schooling their children rather than working them 14 hours a day, as capitalist industrialists did and still do in many parts of the world. And the Soviet Union, along with Bulgaria, the German Democratic Republic and Cuba, provided vital assistance to national liberation movements in countries around the world, including Nelson Mandela's African National Congress in South Africa. Left anti-communists remained studiously unimpressed by the democratic gains won by masses of previously impoverished people under communism. Some were even scornful of such accomplishments. I recall how in Burlington, Vermont in 1971, the noted anti-communist anarchist Murray Bookchin derisively referred to my concern for the poor little children who got fed under communism. His words. Slinging Labels those of us who refused to join in the Soviet bashing were branded by left anti-communists as Soviet apologists and Stalinists, even if we disliked Stalin and his autocratic system of rule and believed there were things seriously wrong with existing Soviet society. Our real sin was that unlike many on the left, we refused to uncritically swallow U.S. media propaganda about communist societies. Instead, we maintained that Aside from the well-publicized deficiencies and injustices, there were positive features about existing communist systems that were worth preserving, that improved the lives of hundreds of millions of people in meaningful and humanizing ways. This claim had a decidedly unsettling effect on left anti-communists, 
who themselves could not utter a positive word about any communist society, except possibly Cuba, and could not lend a tolerant or even courteous ear to anyone who did. Saturated by anti-communist orthodoxy, most U.S. leftists have practiced a left McCarthyism against people who did have something positive to say about existing communism, excluding them from participation in conferences, advisory boards, political endorsements, and left publications. Like conservatives, left anti-communists tolerated nothing less than a blanket condemnation of the Soviet Union as a Stalinist monstrosity and a Leninist moral aberration. That many U.S. leftists have scant familiarity with Lenin's writings and political work does not prevent them from slinging the Leninist label. Noam Chomsky, who is an inexhaustible fount of anti-communist caricatures, offers this comment about Leninism. Western and also third-world intellectuals were attracted to the Bolshevik counter-revolution because Leninism is, after all, a doctrine that says that the radical intelligentsia have a right to take state power and to run their countries by force, and that is an idea which is rather appealing to intellectuals. Here Chomsky fashions an image of power-hungry intellectuals to go along with his cartoon image of power-hungry Leninists, villains seeking not the revolutionary means to fight injustice, but power for power's sake. When it comes to red-bashing, some of the best and brightest on the left sound not much better than the worst on the right. At the time of the 1996 terror bombing in Oklahoma City, I heard a radio commentator announce, Lenin said that the purpose of terror is to terrorize. U.S. media commentators have repeatedly quoted Lenin in that misleading manner. In fact, his statement was disapproving of terrorism. He polemicized against isolated terrorist attacks, which do nothing but create terror among the populace, invite repression, and isolate the revolutionary movement from the masses. Far from being the totalitarian, tight-circled conspirator, Lenin urged the building of broad coalitions and mass organizations, encompassing people who were at different levels of political development. He advocated whatever diverse means were needed to advance the class struggle, including participation in parliamentary elections and existing trade unions. To be sure, the working class, like any mass group, needed organization and leadership to wage a successful revolutionary struggle, which was the role of a vanguard party, but that did not mean the proletarian revolution could be fought and won by putschists or terrorists. Lenin constantly dealt with the problem of avoiding the two extremes of liberal bourgeois opportunism and ultra-left adventurism. Yet he himself is repeatedly identified as an ultra-left putschist by mainstream journalists and some on the left. Whether Lenin's approach to revolution is desirable or even relevant today is a question that warrants critical examination. But a useful evaluation is not likely to come from people who misrepresent his theory and practice. Left anti-communists find any association with communist organizations morally unacceptable because of the crimes of communism. Yet many of them are themselves associated with the Democratic Party in this country, either as voters or as members apparently unconcerned about the morally unacceptable political crimes committed by leaders of that organization. Under one or another democratic administration, 120,000 Japanese Americans were torn from their homes and livelihoods and thrown into detention camps. 
Atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki with an enormous loss of innocent life. The FBI was given authority to infiltrate political groups. The Smith Act was used to imprison leaders of the Trotskyist Socialist Workers' Party and later on leaders of the Communist Party for their political beliefs. Detention camps were established to round up political dissidents in the event of a national emergency. During the late 1940s and 1950s, 8,000 federal workers were purged from government because of their political associations and views, with thousands more in all walks of life witch-hunted out of their careers. The Neutrality Act was used to impose an embargo on the Spanish Republic that worked in favor of Franco's fascist legions. Homicidal counterinsurgency programs were initiated in various third-world countries, and the Vietnam War was pursued and escalated. And for the better part of a century, the congressional leadership of the Democratic Party protected racial segregation and stymied all anti-lynching and fair employment bills. Yet all these crimes, bringing ruination and death to many, have not moved the liberals, the social democrats, and the democratic socialist anti-communists to insist repeatedly that we issue blanket condemnations of either the Democratic Party or the political system that produced it, certainly not with the intolerant fervor that has been directed against existing communism. Pure Socialism versus Siege Socialism The upheavals in Eastern Europe did not constitute a defeat for socialism because socialism never existed in those countries, according to some U.S. leftists. They say that the communist states offered nothing more than bureaucratic, one-party state capitalism, or some such thing. Whether we call the former communist countries socialist is a matter of definition. Suffice it to say, they constituted something different from what existed in the profit-driven capitalist world, as the capitalists themselves were not slow to recognize. First, in communist countries, there was less economic inequality than under capitalism. The perks enjoyed by party and government elites were modest by corporate CEO standards in the West, as were their personal incomes and lifestyles. Soviet leaders like Yuri Andropov and Leonid Brezhnev lived not in lavishly appointed mansions like the White House, but in relatively large apartments in a housing project near the Kremlin set aside for government leaders. They had limousines at their disposal, like most other heads of state, and access to large dachas where they entertained visiting dignitaries. But they had none of the immense personal wealth that most U.S. leaders possess. The lavish life enjoyed by East Germany's party leaders, as widely publicized in the U.S. press, included a $725 yearly allowance in hard currency and housing in an exclusive settlement on the outskirts of Berlin that sported a sauna, an indoor pool, and a fitness center shared by all the residents. They also could shop in stores that carried Western goods such as bananas, jeans, and Japanese electronics. The U.S. press never pointed out that ordinary East Germans had access to public pools and gyms and could buy jeans and electronics, though usually not of the imported variety. Nor was the lavish consumption enjoyed by East German leaders contrasted to the truly opulent lifestyle enjoyed by the Western plutocracy. Second, in communist countries, productive forces were not organized for capital gain and private enrichment. Public ownership of the means of production supplanted private ownership. Individuals could not hire other people and accumulate great personal wealth from their labor. Again, 
Compared to Western standards, differences in earnings and savings among the populace were generally modest. The income spread between highest and lowest earners in the Soviet Union was about 5 to 1. In the United States, the spread in yearly income between the top multi-billionaires and the working poor is more like 10,000 to 1. Third, priority was placed on human services. Though life under communism left a lot to be desired, and the services themselves were rarely the best, communist countries did guarantee their citizens some minimal standard of economic survival and security, including guaranteed education, employment, housing, and medical assistance. Fourth, communist countries did not pursue the capital penetration of other countries. Lacking a profit motive as their motor force, and therefore having no need to constantly find new investment opportunities, they did not expropriate the lands, labor, markets, and natural resources of weaker nations, that is, they did not practice economic imperialism. The Soviet Union conducted trade and aid relations on terms that generally were favorable to the Eastern European nations and Mongolia, Cuba, and India. All of those were organizing principles for every communist system to one degree or another. None apply to free market countries like Honduras, Guatemala, Thailand, South Korea, Chile, Indonesia, Zaire, Germany, or the United States. But a real socialism, it is argued, would be controlled by the workers themselves through direct participation instead of being run by Leninists, Stalinists, Castroites, or other ill-willed, power-hungry, bureaucratic cabals of evil men who betray revolutions. Unfortunately, this pure socialism view is ahistorical and non-falsifiable. It cannot be tested against the actualities of history. It compares an ideal against an imperfect reality, and the reality comes off a poor second. It imagines what socialism would be like in a world far better than this one, where no strong state structure or security force is required, where none of the value produced by workers needs to be expropriated to rebuild society and defended from invasion and internal sabotage. The pure socialists' ideological anticipations remain untainted by existing practice. They do not explain how the manifold functions of a revolutionary society would be organized, how external attack and internal sabotage would be thwarted, how bureaucracy would be avoided, scarce resources allocated, policy differences settled, priorities set, and production and distribution conducted. Instead, they offer vague statements about how the workers themselves will directly own and control the means of production and will arrive at their own solutions through creative struggle. No surprise, then, that the pure socialists support every revolution except the ones that succeed. The pure socialists had a vision of a new society that would create and be created by new people, a society so transformed in its fundaments as to leave little opportunity for wrongful acts, corruption, and criminal abuses of state power. There would be no bureaucracy or self-interested coteries, no ruthless conflicts or hurtful decisions. When the reality proves different and more difficult, some on the left proceed to condemn the real thing and announce that they feel betrayed by this or that revolution. The pure socialists see socialism as an ideal that was tarnished by communist venality, duplicity, and power cravings. The pure socialists oppose the Soviet model, but offer little evidence to demonstrate that other paths could have been taken, that other models of socialism, 
not created from one's imagination but developed through actual historical experience, could have taken hold and worked better. Was an open, pluralistic, democratic socialism actually possible at this historic juncture? The historical evidence would suggest it was not. As the political philosopher Carl Shames argued, how do the left critics know that the fundamental problem was the nature of the ruling revolutionary parties rather than, say, the global concentration of capital that is destroying all independent economies and putting an end to national sovereignty everywhere? And to the extent that it was, where did this nature come from? Was this nature disembodied, disconnected from the fabric of the society itself, from the social relations impacting on it? Thousands of examples could be found in which the centralization of power was a necessary choice in securing and protecting socialist relations. In my observation of existing communist societies, the positive of socialism and the negative of bureaucracy, authoritarianism, and tyranny interpenetrated in virtually every sphere of life. The pure socialists regularly blame the left itself for every defeat it suffers. Their second guessing is endless. So we hear that revolutionary struggles fail because their leaders wait too long or act too soon, are too timid or too impulsive, too stubborn or too easily swayed. We hear that revolutionary leaders are compromising or adventuristic, bureaucratic or opportunistic, rigidly organized or insufficiently organized, undemocratic or failing to provide strong leadership. But always the leaders fail because they do not put their trust in the direct actions of the workers who apparently would withstand and overcome every adversity if only given the kind of leadership available from the left critics' own groupuscule. Unfortunately, the critics seem unable to apply their own leadership genius to producing a successful revolutionary movement in their own country. Tony Febo questioned this blame-the-leadership syndrome of the pure socialists. It occurs to me that when people as smart, different, dedicated, and heroic as Lenin, Mao, Fidel Castro, Daniel Ortega, Ho Chi Minh, and Robert Mugabe, and the millions of heroic people who followed and fought with them, all end up more or less in the same place, then something bigger is at work than who made what decision at what meeting, or even what size houses they went home to after the meeting. These leaders weren't in a vacuum, they were in a whirlwind, and the suction, the force, the power that was twirling them around has spun and left this globe mangled for more than 900 years. And to blame this or that theory or this or that leader is a simple-minded substitute for the kind of analysis that Marxists should make. To be sure, the pure socialists are not entirely without specific agendas for building the revolution. After the Sandinistas overthrew the Somoza dictatorship in Nicaragua, an ultra-left group in that country called for direct worker ownership of the factories. The armed workers would take control of production without benefit of managers, state planners, bureaucrats, or a formal military. While undeniably appealing, this worker syndicalism denies the necessities of state power. Under such an arrangement, the Nicaraguan Revolution would not have lasted two months against the U.S.-sponsored counter-revolution that savaged the country. It would have been unable to mobilize enough resources to field an army, take security measures, or build and coordinate economic programs and human services on a national scale. Decentralization versus Survival For a people's revolution to survive, 
it must seize state power and use it to a. break the stranglehold exercised by the owning class over the society's institutions and resources, and b. withstand the reactionary counterattack that is sure to come. The internal and external dangers a revolution faces necessitate a centralized state power that is not particularly to anyone's liking, not in Soviet Russia in 1917, nor in Sandinista Nicaragua in 1980. Engels offers an apposite account of an uprising in Spain in 1872-1873 in which anarchists seized power in municipalities across the country. At first the situation looked promising. The king had abdicated, and the bourgeois government could muster but a few thousand ill-trained troops. Yet this ragtag force prevailed because it faced a thoroughly parochialized rebellion. Each town proclaimed itself a sovereign canton and set up a revolutionary committee, junta, Engels writes. Each town acted on its own, declaring that the important thing was not cooperation with other towns, but separation from them thus precluding any possibility of a combined attack against bourgeois forces. It was the fragmentation and isolation of the revolutionary forces which enabled the government troops to smash one revolt after the other. Decentralized parochial autonomy is the graveyard of insurgency, which may be one reason why there has never been a successful anarcho-syndicalist revolution. Ideally, it would be a fine thing to have only local, self-directed, worker participation with minimal bureaucracy, police, and military. This probably would be the development of socialism, were socialism ever allowed to develop unhindered by counter-revolutionary subversion and attack. One might recall how, in 1918 through 1920, 14 capitalist nations, including the United States, invaded Soviet Russia in a bloody but unsuccessful attempt to overthrow the revolutionary Bolshevik government. The years of foreign invasion and civil war did much to intensify the Bolsheviks' siege psychology with its commitment to lockstep party unity and a repressive security apparatus. Thus, in May 1921, the same Lenin who had encouraged the practice of internal party democracy and struggled against Trotsky in order to give the trade unions a greater measure of autonomy, now called for an end to the workers' opposition and other factional groups within the party. The time has come, he told an enthusiastically concurring Tenth Party Congress, to put an end to opposition, to put a lid on it. We have had enough opposition. Open disputes and conflicting tendencies within and without the party, the communists concluded, created an appearance of division and weakness that invited attack by formidable foes. Only a month earlier, in April 1921, Lenin had called for more worker representation on the party's central committee. In short, he had become not anti-worker, but anti-opposition. Here was a social revolution, like every other, that was not allowed to develop its political and material life in an unhindered way. By the late 1920s, the Soviets faced the choice of a. moving in a still more centralized direction with a command economy and forced agrarian collectivization and full-speed industrialization under a commandist, autocratic party leadership, the road taken by Stalin, or b. moving in a liberalized direction, allowing more political diversity, more autonomy for labor unions and other organizations, more open debate and criticism, 
greater autonomy among the various Soviet republics, a sector of privately owned small businesses, independent agricultural development by the peasantry, greater emphasis on consumer goods, and less effort given to the kind of capital accumulation needed to build a strong military-industrial base. The latter course, I believe, would have produced a more comfortable, more humane, and serviceable society. Siege socialism would have given way to worker-consumer socialism. The only problem is that the country would have risked being incapable of withstanding the Nazi onslaught. Instead, the Soviet Union embarked upon a rigorous, forced industrialization. This policy has often been mentioned as one of the wrongs perpetrated by Stalin upon his people. It consisted mostly of building, within a decade, an entirely new, huge industrial base east of the Urals in the middle of the barren steppes, the biggest steel complex in Europe, in anticipation of an invasion from the West. Money was spent like water. Men froze, hungered, and suffered, but the construction went on with a disregard for individuals and a mass heroism seldom paralleled in history. Stalin's prophecy that the Soviet Union had only ten years to do what the British had done in a century proved correct. When the Nazis invaded in 1941, that same industrial base, safely ensconced thousands of miles from the front, produced the weapons of war that eventually turned the tide. The cost of this survival included 22 million Soviet citizens who perished in the war and immeasurable devastation and suffering, the effects of which would distort Soviet society for decades afterward. All this is not to say that everything Stalin did was of historical necessity. The exigencies of revolutionary survival did not make inevitable the heartless execution of hundreds of old Bolshevik leaders, the personality cult of a supreme leader who claimed every revolutionary gain as his own achievement, the suppression of party political life through terror, the eventual silencing of debate regarding the pace of industrialization and collectivization, the ideological regulation of all intellectual and cultural life, and the mass deportations of suspect nationalities. The transforming effects of counter-revolutionary attack have been felt in other countries. A Sandinista military officer I met in Vienna in 1986 noted that Nicaraguans were not a warrior people, but they had to learn to fight because they faced a destructive, U.S.-sponsored mercenary war. She bemoaned the fact that war and embargo forced her country to postpone much of its socio-economic agenda. As with Nicaragua, so with Mozambique, Angola, and numerous other countries in which U.S.-financed mercenary forces destroyed farmlands, villages, health centers, and power stations, while killing or starving hundreds of thousands, the revolutionary baby was strangled in its crib or mercilessly bled beyond recognition. This reality ought to earn at least as much recognition as the suppression of dissidents in this or that revolutionary society. The overthrow of Eastern European and Soviet communist governments was cheered by many left intellectuals. Now democracy would have its day. The people would be free from the yoke of communism and the U.S. left would be free from the albatross of existing communism, or as left theorist Richard Lightman put it, liberated from the incubus of the Soviet Union and the succubus of communist China. In fact, the capitalist restoration in Eastern Europe seriously weakened the numerous third-world liberation struggles that had received aid from the Soviet Union, 
and brought a whole new crop of right-wing governments into existence, ones that now worked hand-in-glove with U.S. global counter-revolutionaries around the globe. In addition, the overthrow of communism gave the green light to the unbridled, exploitative impulses of Western corporate interests. No longer needing to convince workers that they live better than their counterparts in Russia, and no longer restrained by a competing system, the corporate class is rolling back the many gains that working people in the West have won over the years. Now that the free market in its meanest form is emerging triumphant in the East, so will it prevail in the West. Capitalism with a human face is being replaced by capitalism in your face, as Richard Levins put it. So in the new exuberant aggressiveness of world capitalism, we see what communists and their allies had held at bay. Having never understood the role that existing communist powers played in tempering the worst impulses of Western capitalism and imperialism, and having perceived communism as nothing but an unmitigated evil, the left anti-communists did not anticipate the losses that were to come. Some of them still don't get it. Chapter 4. Communism in Wonderland the various communist countries suffered from major systemic deficiencies. While these internal problems were seriously exacerbated by the destruction and military threat imposed by the Western capitalist powers, there were a number of difficulties that seemed to inhere in the system itself. Rewarding Inefficiency All communist nations were burdened by rigid economic command systems. Central planning was useful and even necessary in the earlier period of siege socialism to produce steel, wheat, and tanks in order to build an industrial base and withstand the Nazi onslaught, but it eventually hindered technological development and growth and proved incapable of supplying a wide enough range of consumer goods and services. No computerized system could be devised to accurately model a vast and intricate economy. No system could gather and process the immense range of detailed information needed to make correct decisions about millions of production tasks. Top-down planning stifled initiative throughout the system. Stagnation was evident in the failure of the Soviet industrial establishment to apply the innovations of the scientific technological revolution of the 1970s and 1980s, including the use of computer technology. Though the Soviets produced many of the world's best mathematicians, physicists, and other scientists, little of their work found actual application. As Mikhail Gorbachev complained before the 28th Communist Party Congress in 1990, we can no longer tolerate the managerial system that rejects scientific and technological progress and new technologies, that is committed to cost ineffectiveness and generates squandering and waste. It is not enough to denounce ineptitude. One must also try to explain why it persisted, despite repeated exhortations from leaders going as far back as Stalin himself, who seethed about time-serving bureaucrats. An explanation for the failure of the managerial system may be found in the system itself, which created disincentives for innovation. 1. Managers were little inclined to pursue technological paths that might lead to their own obsolescence, Many of them were not competent in the new technologies and should have been replaced. 2. Managers received no rewards for taking risks. They maintained their positions regardless of whether innovative technology was developed, 
as was true of their superiors and central planners. 3. Supplies needed for technological change were not readily available. Since inputs were fixed by the plan, and all materials and labor were fully committed, it was difficult to divert resources to innovative production. In addition, experimentation increased the risks of failing to meet one's quotas. 4. There was no incentive to produce better machines for other enterprises, since that brought no rewards to one's own firm. Quite the contrary, under the pressure to get quantitative results, managers often cut corners on quality. 5. There was a scarcity of replacement parts, both for industrial production and for durable-use consumer goods. Because top planners set such artificially low prices for spare parts, it was seldom cost-efficient for factories to produce them. 6. Because producers did not pay real-value prices for raw materials, fuel, and other things, enterprises often used them inefficiently. 7. Productive capacity was underutilized. Problems of distribution led to excessive unused inventory. Because of irregular shipments, there was a tendency to hoard more than could be put into production, further adding to shortages. 8. Improvements in production would lead only to an increase in one's production quota. In effect, well-run factories were punished with greater workloads. Poor-performing ones were rewarded with lower quotas and state subsidies. Managerial irresponsibility was a problem in agriculture as well as industry. One Vietnamese farm organizer's comment could describe the situation in most other communist countries. The painful lesson of farm cooperatization was that management was not motivated to succeed or produce. If anything, farm management was often motivated to provide a poor product. For instance, since state buyers of meat paid attention to quantity rather than quality, collective farmers maximized profits by producing fatter animals. Consumers might not care to eat fatty meat, but that was their problem. Only a foolish or saintly farmer would work harder to produce better quality meat for the privilege of getting paid less. As in all countries, bureaucracy tended to become a self-feeding animal. Administrative personnel increased at a faster rate than productive workers. In some enterprises, administrative personnel made up half the full number of workers. A factory with 11,000 production workers might have an administrative staff of 5,000, a considerable burden on productivity. The heavily bureaucratic mode of operation did not allow for critical, self-corrective feedback. In general, there was a paucity of the kind of debate that might have held planners and managers accountable to the public. The fate of the whistleblower was the same in communist countries as in our own. Those who exposed waste, incompetence, and corruption were more likely to run risks than receive rewards. Nobody Minding the Store We have been taught that people living under communism suffer from the totalitarian control over every aspect of life, as Time magazine still tells us. Talking to the people themselves, one found that they complained less about overbearing control than about the absence of responsible control. Maintenance people failed to perform needed repairs. Occupants of a new housing project might refuse to pay rent, and no one bothered to collect it. With lax management in harvesting, storage, and transportation, as much as 30% of all produce was lost between field and store, 
and thousands of tons of meat were left to spoil. People complained about broken toilets, leaky roofs, rude salespeople, poor quality goods, late trains, deficient hospital services, and corrupt and unresponsive bureaucrats. The corruption and favoritism were commonplace. There was the manager who regularly pilfered the till, the workers who filched foodstuffs and goods from state stores or supplies from factories in order to service private homes for personal gain, the peasants on collective farms who stripped parts from tractors to sell them on the black market, the director who accepted bribes to place people at the top of a waiting list to buy cars, and the farmers who hoarded livestock which they sold to townspeople at three times the government's low procurement price. All this was hardly the behavior of people trembling under a totalitarian rule of terror. The system itself rewarded evasion and non-compliance. Thus, the poorer the performance of the collective farm, the more substantial the subsidy, and the less demanded in the way of work quotas. The poorer the performance of plumbers and mechanics, the less burdened they were with calls and quotas. The poorer the restaurant service, the fewer the number of clients, and the more food left over to take home for oneself or sell on the black market. The last thing restaurant personnel wanted was satisfied customers who would return to dine at the officially fixed low prices. Not surprisingly, work discipline left much to be desired. There was the clerk who chatted endlessly with a friend on the telephone while a long line of people waited resentfully for service, the two workers who took three days to paint a hotel wall that should have taken a few hours, the many who would walk off their jobs to go shopping. Such poor performance itself contributed to low productivity and the cycle of scarcity. In 1979, Cuban leader Raúl Castro offered this list of abuses. The lack of work discipline, unjustified absences from work, deliberate go-slows so as not to surpass the norms, which are already low and poorly applied in practice so that they won't be changed, in contrast to capitalism, when people in the countryside worked an exhausting 12-hour workday and more, there are a good many instances today, especially in agriculture, of people working no more than four or six hours, with the exception of cane cutters and possibly a few other kinds of work. We know that in many cases, heads of brigades and foremen make a deal with workers to meet the norm in half a day and then go off and work for the other half for some nearby small private farmer for extra income, or to go slow and meet the norm in seven or eight hours, or do two or three norms in a day and report them over other days on which they don't go to work. All these tricks of the trade in agriculture are also to be found in industry, transportation services, repair shops, and many other places where there's rampant buddyism, cases of you do me a favor and I'll do you one, and pilfering on the side. If fired, an individual had a constitutional guarantee to another job, and seldom had any difficulty finding one. The labor market was a seller's market. Workers did not fear losing their jobs, but managers feared losing their best workers, and sometimes overpaid them to prevent them from leaving. Too often, however, neither monetary rewards nor employment itself were linked to performance. The dedicated employee usually earned no more than the irresponsible one. The slackers and pilferers had a demoralizing effect on those who wanted to work in earnest. Full employment was achieved by padding the workforce with people who had relatively little to do. This added to labor scarcity, low productivity, lack of work discipline, 
and the failure to implement labor-saving technologies that could maximize production. The communists operated on the assumption that once capitalism and its attendant economic abuses were eliminated, and once social production was communalized and people were afforded some decent measure of security and prosperity, they would contentedly do their fair share of work. That often proved not so. Communist economies had a kind of wonderland quality, in that prices seldom bore any relation to actual cost or value. Many expensive services were provided almost entirely free, such as education, medical care, and most recreational, sporting, and cultural events. Housing, transportation, utilities, and basic foods were heavily subsidized. Many people had money, but not much to buy with it. High-priced quality goods and luxury items were hard to come by. All this in turn affected work performance. Why work hard to earn more when there was not that much to buy? Wage increases, designed to attract workers to disagreeable or low-prestige jobs or as incentives to production, only added to the disparity between purchasing power and the supply of goods. Prices were held artificially low, first out of dedication to egalitarian principles, but also because attempts to readjust them provoked worker protests in Poland, East Germany, and the USSR. Thus, in the Soviet Union and Poland, the state refused to raise the price of bread, which was priced at only a few pennies per loaf, though it cost less than animal feed. One result? Farmers in both countries bought the bread to feed their pigs. With rigorous price controls, there was hidden inflation, a large black market, and long shopping lines. Citizens were expected to play by the rules and not take advantage of the system, even when the system inadvertently invited transgressions. They were expected to discard a self-interested mode of behavior when in fact there was no reward and some disadvantage in doing so. The brutal totalitarian regime was actually a giant trough from which many took whatever they could. There was strong resentment concerning consumer scarcities, the endless shopping lines, the ten-year wait for a new automobile, the housing shortage that compelled single people to live at home or get married in order to qualify for an apartment of their own, and the five-year wait for that apartment. The crowding and financial dependency on parents often led to early divorce. These and other such problems took their toll on people's commitment to socialism. Wanting it all I listened to an East German friend complain of poor services and inferior products. The system did not work, he concluded. But what of the numerous social benefits so lacking in much of the world, I asked, aren't these to be valued? His response was revealing. Oh, nobody ever talks about that. People took for granted what they had in the way of human services and entitlements while hungering for the consumer goods dangling in their imaginations. The human capacity for discontent should not be underestimated. People cannot live on the social wage alone. Once our needs are satisfied, then our wants tend to escalate, and our wants become our needs. A rise in living standards often incites a still greater rise in expectations. As people are treated better, they want more of the good things and are not necessarily grateful for what they already have. Leading professionals who had attained relatively good living standards wanted to dress better, travel abroad, and enjoy the more abundant lifestyles available to people of means in the capitalist world. It was this desire for greater affluence, rather than the quest for political freedom, 
that motivated most of those who emigrated to the West. Material wants were mentioned far more often than the lack of democracy. The emigres who fled Vietnam in 1989 were not persecuted political dissidents. Usually they were relatively prosperous craftsmen, small entrepreneurs, well-educated engineers, architects, and intellectuals seeking greater opportunities. To quote one, I don't think my life here in Vietnam is very bad. In fact, I'm very well off. But that's human nature to always want something better. Another testified, We had two shops, and our income was decent, but we wanted a better life. And another, They left for the same reasons we did. They wanted to be richer, just like us. Today, a get-rich mania is spreading throughout much of Vietnam as that nation lurches toward a market economy. Likewise, the big demand in the German Democratic Republic, GDR, was for travel, new appliances, and bigger apartments. The New York Times described East Germany as a country of 16 million who seem transfixed by one issue. How soon can they become as prosperous as West Germany? A national poll taken in China reported that 68% chose as their goal to live well and get rich. In 1989, I asked the GDR ambassador in Washington, D.C., why his country made such junky two-cylinder cars. He said the goal was to develop good public transportation and discourage the use of costly private vehicles. But when asked to choose between a rational, efficient, economically sound and ecologically sane mass transportation system or an automobile with its instant mobility, special status, privacy and personal empowerment, the East Germans went for the latter as do most people in the world. The ambassador added ruefully, We thought building a good society would make good people. That's not always true. Whether or not it was a good society, at least he was belatedly recognizing the discrepancy between public ideology and private desire. In Cuba today, many youth see no value in joining the Communist Party and think Fidel Castro has had his day and should step aside. The revolutionary accomplishments in education and medical care are something they take for granted and cannot get excited about. Generally, they are more concerned about their own personal future than about socialism. University courses on Marxism and courses on the Cuban Revolution, once over-enrolled, now go sparsely attended, while students crowd into classes on global markets and property law. With the U.S. blockade and the loss of Soviet aid, the promise of abundance receded beyond sight in Cuba, and the cornucopia of the North appeared even more alluring. Many Cuban youth idealize life in the United States and long for its latest styles and music. Like the Eastern Europeans, they think capitalism will deliver the goodies at no special cost. When told that young people in the United States face serious hurdles, they respond with all the certainty of inexperience. We know that many people in the States are poor and that many are rich, if you work hard, however, you can do well. It is the land of opportunity. By the second or third generation, relatively few are still alive who can favorably contrast their lives under socialism with the great hardships and injustices of pre-revolutionary days. As stated by one Cuban youth who has no memory of life before the revolution, we're tired of the slogans. That was all right for our parents, but the revolution is history. In a society of rapidly rising and sometimes unrealistic expectations, those who did not do well, who could not find employment commensurate with their training, or who were stuck with drudge work, 
were especially inclined to want a change. Even in the best of societies, much labor has an instrumental value, but no inherent gratification. The sooner a tedious task is completed, the sooner there is another to be done, so why knock yourself out? If building the revolution and winning the battle of production mean performing essential but routine tasks for the rest of one's foreseeable future, the revolution understandably loses its luster. There is often not enough interesting and creative work to go around for all who consider themselves interesting and creative people. In time, the revolution suffers from the routinization of charisma. Ordinary people cannot sustain in everyday life a level of intense dedication for abstract, albeit beautiful, ideals. Why struggle for a better life if it cannot now be attained? And if it can be enjoyed now, then forget about revolutionary sacrifice. Reactionism to the Surface For years I heard about the devilishly clever manipulations of communist propaganda. Later on, I was surprised to discover that news media in communist countries were usually lackluster and plotting. Western capitalist nations are immersed in an advertising culture with billions spent on marketing and manipulating images. The communist countries had nothing comparable. Their media coverage generally consisted of dull protocol visits and official pronouncements, along with glowing reports about the economy and society, so glowing that people complained about not knowing what was going on in their own country. They could read about abuses of power, industrial accidents, worker protests, and earthquakes occurring in every country but their own. And even when the press exposed domestic abuses, they usually went uncorrected. Media reports sometimes so conflicted with daily experience that the official press was not believed, even when it did tell the truth, as when it reported on poverty and repression in the capitalist world. If anything, Many intellectuals in communist nations were utterly starry-eyed about the capitalist world and unwilling to look at its seamier side. Ferociously opposed to the socialist system, they were anti-communist to the point of being full-fledged adulators of Western reactionism. The more rabidly reactionary chic a position was, the more appeal it had for the intelligentsia. With almost religious fervor, Intellectuals maintained that the capitalist West, especially the United States, was a free-market paradise of superabundance and almost limitless opportunity. Nor would they believe anything to the contrary. With complete certitude, well-fed, university-educated Moscow intellectuals sitting in their modest but comfortable apartments would tell U.S. visitors, the poorer among you live better than we. A conservative deputy editor of the Wall Street Journal, David Brooks, offers this profile of the Moscow intellectual. He is the master of contempt and feels he is living in a world run by imbeciles. He is not unsure, casting about for the correct answers. The immediate answers are obvious, democracy and capitalism. His self-imposed task is to smash the idiots who stand in the way. He has none of the rococo mannerisms of our intellectuals, but values bluntness, rudeness, and arrogance. These democratic intellectuals love Ronald Reagan, Marlboroughs, and the South in the American Civil War. Consider Andrei Sakharov, a darling of the U.S. press who regularly praised corporate capitalism while belittling the advances achieved by the Soviet people. He lambasted the U.S. peace movement for its opposition to the Vietnam War, 
and accused the Soviets of being military expansionists and the sole culprits behind the arms race. Sakharov supported every U.S. armed intervention abroad as a defense of democracy and characterized new U.S. weapons systems like the neutron bomb as primarily defensive. Anointed by U.S. leaders and media as a human rights advocate, he never had an unkind word for the human rights violations perpetrated by the fascist regimes of faithful U.S. client states, including Pinochet's Chile and Suharto's Indonesia, and he directed snide remarks toward those who did. He regularly attacked those in the West who dissented from anti-communist orthodoxy and who opposed U.S. interventionism abroad. As with many other Eastern European intellectuals, Sakharov's advocacy of dissent did not extend to opinions that deviated to the left of his own. The tolerance for Western imperialism extended into the upper reaches of the Soviet government itself, as reflected in a remark made in 1989 by a high-ranking official in the Soviet foreign ministry, Andrei Kozirev, who stated that third-world countries suffer not so much from capitalism as from a lack of it. Either by design or stupidity, he confused capital, which those nations lack, with capitalism, of which they have more than enough to victimize them. He also claimed that none of the main bourgeois groups in America are connected with militarism. To think of them as imperialists who plunder third-world countries is a stereotyped idea that should be discarded. As a system of analysis mainly concerned with existing capitalism, Marxism has relatively little to say about the development of socialist societies. In the communist countries, Marxism was doled out like a catechism. Its critique of capitalism had no vibrancy or meaning for those who lived in a non-capitalist society. Instead, most intellectuals found excitement in the forbidden fruit of Western bourgeois ideology. In looking to the West, they were not interested in broadening the ideological spectrum, a desirable goal, but in replacing the dominant view with a rightist, anti-communist orthodoxy. They were not for an end to ideology, but for replacing one ideology with another. Without hesitation, they added their voices to the chorus singing the glories of the free market paradise. Heavily subsidized by Western sources, the right-wing intelligentsia produced publications like Moscow News and Argumenti e Facti, which put out a virulently pro-capitalist, pro-imperialist message. One such publication, Literaturnaya Gazeta, hailed Reagan and Bush as statesmen and the architects of peace. It questioned the need for a ministry of culture in the USSR, even one that was now headed by an anti-communist. There is no such ministry in the United States, and yet it seems that there is nothing wrong with American culture. Who said Russians don't have a sense of humor? With the decline of communist power in Eastern Europe, the worst political scum began to float to the surface. Nazi sympathizers and hate groups of all sorts, though they were not the only purveyors of bigotry. In 1990, none other than Polish solidarity leader Lech Walesa declared that a gang of Jews has gotten hold of the trough and is bent on destroying us. Later on, he maintained that the comment did not apply to all Jews, but only those who are looking out for themselves while giving not a damn about anyone else. The following year, in Poland's post-communist presidential election, various candidates, including Valenza, outdid each other in their anti-Semitic illusions. In 1996, at a national ceremony, Solidarity Chief Zygmunt Żadak 
resorted to anti-Semitic vituperation while railing against the previous communist regime. Romanticizing Capitalism In 1990, in Washington, D.C., the Hungarian ambassador held a press conference to announce that his country was discarding its socialist system because it did not work. When I asked why it did not work, he said, I don't know. Here was someone who confessed that he had no understanding of the deficiencies of his country's socioeconomic process, even though he was one of those in charge of that process. Leaders who talk only to each other are soon out of touch with reality. The policymakers of these communist states showed a surprisingly unmarxist understanding of the problems they faced. There were denunciations and admonitions aplenty, but little systemic analysis of why and how things had come to such an impasse. Instead, there was much admiration for what was taken to be Western capitalist know-how and remarkably little understanding of the uglier side of capitalism and how it impacted upon the world. In the USSR, Glasnost, the use of critical debate to invite innovation and reform, opened Soviet media to Western penetration and accelerated the very disaffection it was intended to rectify. Leaders in Poland and Hungary, and eventually the Soviet Union and the other European communist nations, decided to open their economies to Western investment during the late 1980s. It was anticipated that state ownership would exist on equal terms with cooperatives, foreign investors, and domestic private entrepreneurs. In fact, the whole state economy was put at risk and eventually undermined. Communist leaders had even less understanding of the capitalist system than of their own. Most people living under socialism had little understanding of capitalism in practice. Workers interviewed in Poland believed that if their factory were to be closed down in the transition to the free market, the state will find us some other work. They thought they would have it both ways. In the Soviet Union, many who argued for privatization also expected the government to continue providing them with collective benefits and subsidies. One skeptical farmer got it right. Some people want to be capitalists for themselves, but expect socialism to keep serving them. Reality sometimes hit home. In 1990, during the Glasnost period, when the Soviet government announced that the price of newsprint would be raised 300% to make it commensurate with its actual cost, the new pro-capitalist publications complained bitterly. They were angry that state socialism would no longer subsidize their denunciations of state socialism. They were being subjected to the same free market realities they so enthusiastically advocated for everyone else, and they did not like it. Not everyone romanticized capitalism. Many of the Soviet and Eastern European emigres who had migrated to the United States during the 1970s and 1980s complained about this country's poor social services, crime, harsh work conditions, lack of communitarian spirit, vulgar electoral campaigns, inferior educational standards, and the astonishing ignorance that Americans had about history. They discovered they could no longer leave their jobs during the day to go shopping, that their employers provided no company doctor when they fell ill on the job, that they were subject to severe reprimands when tardy, that they could not walk the streets and parks late at night without fear, that they might not be able to afford medical services for their family or college tuition for their children, and that they had no guarantee of a job and might experience unemployment at any time. 
Among those who never emigrated were some who did not harbor illusions about capitalism. In fact, numerous workers, peasants and elderly, were fearful of the changes ahead and not entirely sold on the free market mythology. A 1989 survey in Czechoslovakia found that 47% wanted their economy to remain state-controlled, while 43% wanted a mixed economy, and only 3% said they favored capitalism. In May 1991, a survey of Russians by a U.S. polling organization found that 54% chose some form of socialism and only 20% wanted a free market economy such as in the United States or Germany. Another 27% elected for a modified form of capitalism as found in Sweden. Still, substantial numbers, especially among intellectuals and youths, the two groups who know everything, opted for the free market paradise without the faintest notion of its social costs. Against the inflated imagination, reality is a poor thing. Against the glittering image of the West's cornucopia, the routinized, scarcity-ridden, and often exasperating experiences of communist society did not have a chance. It seems communism created a dialectical dynamic that undermined itself. It took semi-feudal, devastated, underdeveloped countries and successfully industrialized them, bringing a better life for most. But this very process of modernization and uplift also created expectations that could not be fulfilled. Many expected to keep all the securities of socialism overlaid with capitalist consumerism. As we shall see in subsequent chapters, they were in for some painful surprises. One reason siege socialism could not make the transition to consumer socialism is that the state of siege was never lifted. As noted in the previous chapter, the very real internal deficiencies within communist systems were exacerbated by unrelenting external attacks and threats from the Western powers. Born into a powerfully hostile capitalist world, communist nations suffered through wars, invasions, and an arms race that exhausted their productive capacities and retarded their development. The decision by Soviet leaders to achieve military parity with the United States while working from a much smaller industrial base placed a serious strain on the entire Soviet economy. The very siege socialism that allowed the USSR to survive made it difficult for it to thrive. Perestroika, the restructuring of socio-economic practices in order to improve performance, was intended to open and revitalize production. Instead, it led to the unraveling of the entire state socialist fabric. Thus, the pluralistic media that were to replace the communist monopoly media eventually devolved into a pro-capitalist, ideological monopoly. The same thing happened to other socialist institutions. The intent was to use a shot of capitalism to bolster socialism. The reality was that socialism was used to subsidize and build an unforgiving capitalism. Pressed hard throughout its history by global capitalism's powerful financial, economic, and military forces, State socialism endured a perpetually tenuous existence, only to be swept away when the floodgates were opened to the West. Chapter 5. Stalin's Fingers In 1989 through 1991, remarkable transformations swept across Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. Communist governments were overthrown. 
large portions of their publicly owned economies were dismantled and handed over to private owners at garage sale prices, and one-party rule was replaced with multi-party parliamentary systems. For Western leaders who had tirelessly pursued the rollback of communism, it was a dream come true. If the overthrow of communism was a victory for democracy, as some claimed, it was even more a victory for free market capitalism and conservative anti-communism. Some of the credit should go to the CIA and other Cold War agencies, along with the National Endowment for Democracy, the AFL-CIO, the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, the Pew Charitable Trusts, and various right-wing groups, all of whom funded free-market, anti-communist political organizations and publications throughout Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, in what swiftly became the best-financed chain of revolutions in history. The upheavals occurred with remarkably little violence. As Lech Walesa boasted in November 1989, Polish solidarity overthrew the communist government without breaking a single window. This says at least as much about the government that was overthrown as about the rebels. Rather than acting as might U.S.-supported rulers in El Salvador, Colombia, Zaire, or Indonesia, with death squad terrorism and mass repression, the communists relinquished power almost without firing a shot. The relatively peaceful transition does not fit our image of unscrupulous totalitarians who stop at nothing to maintain power over captive populations. Why didn't the ruthless Reds act more ruthlessly? How many victims? We have heard much about the ruthless Reds, beginning with the reign of terror and repression perpetrated during the dictatorship of Joseph Stalin, 1929-1953. through 1953. Estimates of those who perished under Stalin's rule, based principally on speculations by writers who never reveal how they arrive at such figures, vary wildly. Thus, Roy Medvedev put Stalin's victims at 5 to 7 million, Robert Conquest decided on 7 to 8 million, Olga Shatunovskaya claims 19.8 million just for the 1935 to 1940 period, Stephen Cohen says 9 million by 1939, with 3 million executed or dying from mistreatment during the 1936 through 1939 period, and Arthur Kessler tells us it was 20 to 25 million. More recently, William Rusher of the Claremont Institute refers to the 100 million people wantonly murdered by communist dictators since the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. And Richard Lowry blames the Stalin era for the slaughter of millions. Unburdened by any documentation, these estimates invite us to conclude that the sum total of people incarcerated in the labor camps over a 22-year period allowing for turnovers due to death and term expirations, would have constituted an astonishing portion of the Soviet population. The support and supervision of the Gulag, all the labor camps, labor colonies, and prisons of the Soviet system, would have been the USSR's single largest enterprise. In the absence of reliable evidence, we are fed anecdotes, such as the story Winston Churchill tells of the time he asked Stalin how many people died in the famine. According to Churchill, the Soviet leader responded by raising both his hands, a gesture that may have signified an unwillingness to broach the subject. But since Stalin happened to have five fingers on each hand, Churchill concluded, without benefit of a clarifying follow-up question, that Stalin was confessing to 10 million victims. Would the head of one state 
especially the secretive Stalin, casually proffer such an admission to the head of another? To this day, Western writers treat this woolly tale as an ironclad confession of mass atrocities. What we do know of Stalin's purges is that many victims were Communist Party officials, managers, military officers, and other strategically situated individuals whom the dictator saw fit to incarcerate or liquidate. In addition, whole categories of people whom Stalin considered of unreliable loyalty, Cossacks, Crimean Tartars, and ethnic Germans, were selected for internal deportation. Though they never saw the inside of a prison or labor camp, they were subjected to non-custodial resettlement in Central Asia and Siberia. To be sure, crimes of state were committed in communist countries, and many political prisoners were unjustly interned and even murdered. But the inflated numbers offered by Cold War scholars served neither historical truth nor the cause of justice, but merely helped to reinforce a knee-jerk fear and loathing of those terrible Reds. In 1993, for the first time, several historians gained access to previously secret Soviet police archives and were able to establish well-documented estimates of prison and labor camp populations. They found that the total population of the entire Gulag, as of January 1939, near the end of the Great Purges, was 2,022,976. At about that time, there began a purge of the purgers, including many intelligence and secret police, NKVD officials, and members of the Judiciary and other investigative committees, who were suddenly held responsible for the excesses of the terror, despite their protestations of fidelity to the regime. Soviet labor camps were not death camps like those the Nazis built across Europe. There was no systematic extermination of inmates, no gas chambers or crematoria to dispose of millions of bodies. Despite harsh conditions, the great majority of gulag inmates survived and eventually returned to society when granted amnesty or when their terms were finished. In any given year, 20 to 40 percent of the inmates were released, according to archive records. Oblivious to these facts, the Moscow correspondent of the New York Times, July 31, 1996, continues to describe the gulag as the largest system of death camps in modern history. Almost a million Gulag prisoners were released during World War II to serve in the military. The archives reveal that more than half of all Gulag deaths for the 1934 to 1953 period occurred during the war years 1941 through 1945, mostly from malnutrition, when severe privation was the common lot of the entire Soviet population. Some 22 million Soviet citizens perished in the war. In 1944, for instance, the labor camp death rate was 92 per 1,000. By 1953, with the post-war recovery, camp deaths had declined to 3 per 1,000. Should all gulag inmates be considered innocent victims of red repression? Contrary to what we have been led to believe, those arrested for political crimes, counter-revolutionary offenses, numbered from 12 to 33 percent of the prison population varying from year to year. The vast majority of inmates were charged with non-political offenses, murder, assault, theft, banditry, smuggling, swindling, and other violations punishable in any society. Total executions from 1921 to 1953, a 33-year span inclusive, 
were 799,455. No breakdown of this figure was provided by the researchers. It includes those who were guilty of non-political capital crimes, as well as those who collaborated in the Western capitalist invasion and subsequent White Guard Army atrocities. It also includes some of the considerable numbers who collaborated with the Nazis during World War II, and probably German SS prisoners. In any case, the killings of political opponents were not in the millions or tens of millions, which is not to say that the actual number was either inconsequential or justifiable. The three historians who studied the heretofore secret gulag records concluded that the number of victims were far less than usually claimed in the West. This finding is ridiculed by anti-communist liberal Adam Hochschild, who prefers to repeat Churchill's story about Stalin's fingers, New York Times. Like many others, Hochschild has no trouble accepting undocumented speculations about the gulag, but much difficulty accepting the documented figures drawn from NKVD archives. Where did the gulag go? Some Russian anti-communist writers such as Solzhenitsyn and Sakharov and many U.S. anti-communist liberals maintain that the gulag existed right down to the last days of communism. If so, where did it disappear to? After Stalin's death in 1953, more than half of the gulag inmates were freed, according to the study of the NKVD files previously cited. But if so many others remained incarcerated, why have they not materialized? When the communist states were overthrown, where were the half-starved hordes pouring out of the internment camps with their tales of travail? One of the last remaining Soviet labor camps, Perm 35, was visited in 1989 by Republican congressmen and again in 1990 by French journalists. Both parties found only a few dozen prisoners some of whom were identified as outright spies. Others were refuseniks who had been denied the right to emigrate. Prisoners worked eight hours a day, six days a week, for 250 rubles, $40 a month. What have the supposedly vast numbers of political prisoners said to exist in the other communist totalitarian police states of Eastern Europe? Why no evidence of their mass release in the post-communist era? And where are the mass of political prisoners in Cuba? Asked about this, Professor Alberto Prieto of the University of Havana pointed out that even a recent State Department report on human rights showed hundreds of people being tortured, killed, or disappeared in almost all the Latin American countries, but mentioned only six alleged political prisoners in reference to Cuba. If there were mass atrocities right down to the last days of communism, why did not the newly installed anti-communist regimes seize the opportunity to bring erstwhile communist rulers to justice. Why no Nuremberg-style public trials documenting widespread atrocities? Why were not hundreds of party leaders and security officials and thousands of camp guards rounded up and tried for the millions they supposedly exterminated? The best the West Germans could do was charge East German leader Erich Honecker, several other officials, and seven border guards with shooting people who tried to escape over the Berlin Wall. A serious charge, but hardly indicative of a gulag. Authorities in the Western Capitalist Federal Republic of Germany, FRG, did contrive a charge of treason against persons who served as officials, military officers, 
soldiers, judges, attorneys, and others of the now-defunct German Democratic Republic, GDR, a sovereign nation that once had full standing in the United Nations, and most of whose citizens had never been subjects of the FRG. As of 1996, more than 300 treason cases had been brought to trial, including a former GDR intelligence chief, a defense minister, and six generals, all indicted for carrying out what were their legal duties under the Constitution and laws of the GDR, in some instances fighting fascism and CIA sabotage. Many of the defendants were eventually acquitted, but a number were sentenced to prison. What we witness here is the Nuremberg trials in reverse. Reds put on trial for their anti-fascist efforts by West German friendly-to-fascism prosecutors using a retroactive application of FRG penal law for GDR citizens. As of the beginning of 1997, several thousand more trials were expected. In 1995, Miroslav Stefan, the former secretary of the Prague Communist Party, was sentenced to two and a half years for ordering Czech police to use tear gas and water cannons against demonstrators in 1988. Is this the best example of bloodthirsty red oppression that the capitalist restorationists in Czechoslovakia could find? An action that does not even qualify as a crime in most Western nations? In 1996 in Poland, 12 elderly Stalin-era political policemen were sentenced to prison for having beaten and mistreated prisoners over 50 years earlier during the communist takeover after World War II. Again, one might wonder why post-communist leaders seeking to bring the communist tyrants to justice could find nothing more serious to prosecute than a police assault case from a half-century before. Most of those incarcerated in the Gulag were not political prisoners, and the same appears to be true of inmates in the other communist states. In 1989, when the millionaire playwright Václav Havel became president of Czechoslovakia, he granted amnesty to about two-thirds of the country's prison population, which numbered not in the millions but in the thousands. Havel assumed that most of those incarcerated under communism were victims of political repression and therefore deserved release. He and his associates were dismayed to discover that a good number were experienced criminals who lost no time in resuming their unsavory pursuits. Memories of Maldevelopment In Chapter 2, I discuss the role of popular revolution in advancing the condition of humankind. That analysis would apply as well to communist revolutions and is worth reiterating in the present context. We hear a great deal about the crimes of communism, but almost nothing about its achievements. The communist government's inherited societies, burdened with an age-old legacy of economic exploitation and maldevelopment. Much of pre-communist Eastern Europe, as with pre-revolutionary Russia and China, was in effect a third-world region with widespread poverty and almost non-existent capital formation. Most rural transportation was still by horse and wagon. The devastation of World War II added another heavy layer of misery upon the region, reducing hundreds of villages and many cities to rubble. It was the communists and their allies who rebuilt these societies. While denounced in the U.S. press for leaving their economies in bad shape, in fact, the Reds left the economy of Eastern Europe in far better condition than they found it. 
The same was true of China. Henry Rosemont Jr. notes that when the communists liberated Shanghai from the U.S.-supported reactionary Kuomintang regime in 1949, about 20% of that city's population, an estimated 1.2 million, were drug addicts. Every morning there were special street crews whose sole task was to gather up the corpses of the children, adults, and the elderly who had been murdered during the night or had been abandoned and died of disease, cold, and or starvation. During the years of Stalin's reign, the Soviet nation made dramatic gains in literacy, industrial wages, health care, and women's rights. These accomplishments usually go unmentioned when the Stalinist era is discussed. To say that socialism doesn't work is to overlook the fact that it did. In Eastern Europe, Russia, China, Mongolia, North Korea, and Cuba, revolutionary communism created a life for the mass of people that was far better than the wretched existence they had endured under feudal lords, military bosses, foreign colonizers, and Western capitalists. The end result was a dramatic improvement in living conditions for hundreds of millions of people on a scale never before or since witnessed in history. State socialism transformed desperately poor countries into modernized societies in which everyone had enough food, clothing, and shelter, where elderly people had secure pensions, and where all children and many adults went to school and no one was denied medical attention. Some of us from poor families who carry around the hidden injuries of class are much impressed by these achievements and are unwilling to dismiss them as merely economistic. But what are the democratic rights that these people were denied? In fact, with the exception of Czechoslovakia, these countries had known little political democracy in the days before communism. Russia was a czarist autocracy. Poland, a rightist dictatorship with concentration camps of its own, Albania, an Italian fascist protectorate as early as 1927, Cuba, a U.S.-sponsored dictatorship, Lithuania, Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria were outright fascist regimes allied with Nazi Germany in World War II. Then there were the distorting effects that unremitting capitalist encirclement had upon the building of socialism. Throughout its entire 73-year history of counter-revolutionary invasion, civil war, forced industrialization, Stalinist purges and deportations, Nazi conquest, Cold War, and nuclear arms race, the Soviet Union did not know one day of peaceful development. In the attempt to maintain military parity with the United States, the Soviets took on crushing defense costs that seriously depleted their civilian economy. In addition, they faced monetary boycott, trade discrimination, and technological embargo from the West. The people who lived under communism endured chronic shortages, long lines, poor quality goods and services, and many other problems. They wanted a better life, and who could blame them? Without capitalist encirclement, they would have had a better chance of solving more of their internal problems. All this is not to deny the very real deficiencies of the communist systems. Here I want to point out that much of the credit for the deformation and overthrow of communism should go to the Western forces that tirelessly dedicated themselves to that task, using every possible means of political, economic, 
military, and diplomatic aggression to achieve a success that will continue to cost the people of the world dearly. Chapter 6 The Free Market Paradise Goes East 1. Capitalist restoration in the former communist countries has taken different forms. In Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, it involved the overthrow of communist governments. In China, it proceeded within the framework of a communist system, as seems to be happening in Vietnam and perhaps will happen eventually in North Korea and Cuba. While the Chinese government continues under a nominally communist leadership, the process of private capital penetration goes on more or less unhindered. Suppression of the Left The anti-communists who took power in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union in 1989 through 1991 set about to impose bourgeois dominance over political and cultural life, purging communists from government, the media, universities, professions, and courts. While presenting themselves as democratic reformers, they soon grew impatient with the way democratic forms of popular resistance limited their efforts to install an unrestrained free-market capitalism. In Russia, associates of President Boris Yeltsin talked of the dangers of democracy and complained that most representative bodies have become a hindrance to our market reforms. Apparently, the free market, said by reformers, to be the very foundation of political democracy, could not be introduced through democratic means. In 1992, the presidents of Poland, Czechoslovakia, and Russia demanded that their parliaments be suspended and they be allowed to rule by presidential decree, with repressive measures against hardliners and holdovers who resisted the free market reforms. Their goal was not power to the people, but profits to the privileged. This process of democratization via suppression began even before the actual overthrow of communism. In 1991, Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev, prodded by Russian President Yeltsin, announced that the Communist Party of the USSR no longer had legal status. The party's membership funds and buildings were confiscated. Workers were prohibited from engaging in any kind of political activities in the workplace. Six leftist newspapers were suppressed, while all other publications, many of them openly reactionary, enjoyed uninterrupted distribution. The U.S. media, and even many on the U.S. left, hailed these acts of suppression as moving ahead with democratic reforms. Gorbachev then demanded that the Soviet Congress abolish itself. It had remained too resistant to change. Actually, the Congress was not opposed to democratic debate and multi-party elections. These were already in practice. It resisted an unbridled free-market capitalism, and for that reason would have to go. Gorbachev repeatedly cut off the microphones during debate and threatened single-handedly to abolish the Congress by emergency decree. He forced a vote three times until he got the desired abolition. These strong-arm methods were reported in the U.S. press without critical comment. What gave Yeltsin and Gorbachev the excuse to pursue this repressive course was the curious incident of August 1991, when a nervous group of leaders, mouthing vague phrases about the deterioration of life in the Soviet Union, attempted an oddly orchestrated coup against the Gorbachev government 
one that flopped before it ever got off the ground. Weeks later, the Washington Post, September 26, 1991, noted happily that the defeat of the coup was a triumph for the Soviet moneyed class. Among the coup's militant opponents were private entrepreneurs and thousands of members of the Russian Stock Exchange, who routinely made 20 times the average wage of ordinary Soviets. They headed on to the streets of Moscow to defend their right to wheel and deal. The coup collapsed, democracy triumphed. Private businessmen contributed more than 15 million rubles to buy food and equipment for the defenders. One broker was struck by how few workers responded to Yeltsin's call to defend democracy. The boldness of this investor class in the face of an armed coup might have another explanation. A socialist critic of communism, Boris Kagarlitsky, argued, in fact, there was no coup at all. The soldiers were unarmed and confused. The tanks called out were undirected, and the leaders of the so-called coup never even seriously tried to take power. The real coup, says Kagarlitsky, came in the aftermath when Boris Yeltsin used the incident to exceed his constitutional power.